Yeah, because we're we we we're spending like what what four hours a weekend, and we're only on page fifty-two. Hello, and welcome to the fourth episode of the Refuting Marxist Inconsistency, Capital and the TSSI series. This week, we continue our close reading of Andrew Kleiman's Reclaiming Marxist Capital and delve deep into Chapter 3. This week, we talk in depth about a very simple equation that is incredibly important and illuminating, and I've used it as the graphic for this week's episode. You can also watch this episode on the YouTube channel if you'd like to see some of the passages we are quoting. If you'd like to comment on the show, please do so on the YouTube video, and please, please, please like, thumbs up and subscribe. Before we start, I'd just like to thank this week's two new Patreon subscribers, ID Paul Pot and Stefan H. You too can help support the show by becoming a Patreon subscriber, or by clicking that there PayPal donation button. As a bonus, all Patreon subscribers will get the latest episode a day or two early. Okay, so to the discussion. Hello and welcome to part four of the TSSI series. Today we have a fairly full panel. Let's introduce everybody. Who do we have? We have got Emmanuel. Everyone. From Enfaludatsak. Yeah, awesome. Hi, it's it's Emmanuel from the, the Swedish Marxist podcast uh, for a lost cause or Enfaludatsak in Swedish. And we have see Derek Varn from Symptomatic Redness. Derek, do you want to say hello? Hi, and I'm from Symptomatic Redness, Emancipation, Inside Zero Books. I don't know. What what all do I do these days? I don't even know anymore. Anyway. <laughs> Stop showing off, Derek. Mute yourself. Right. We got Lexi. <laughs> hey, what's up? Um, I'm just f- figuring out the finer points of uh, pronouncing Emmanuel's podcast. We also have Puya, who's a long time from Alpha to li- Omega listener and a Sumside listener too. Puya was on last week. Do you want to say hi? Hey, I'm Puya. Nice to see everybody. Welcome back, Puya. Okay, now, uh, so we have the five of us here today. We also have Alex f- from last week is in the chat. I want to give a shout out also to... Uh, Alex for becoming a Patreon and also to a brand new Patreon one just there a few minutes ago from Jake P. Okay, so last week we finished chapter two of Andrew Kleiman's uh, Reclaiming Marx's Capital. Um, so chapter two was, a, was a, a major one. It was basically giving us the TSSI's interpretation of what Marx said. So that was part one. Of that chapter and part two was the alter- uh, a brief overview of the alternatives putting uh most most of it was looking into the dual system interpretations and also the single system interpretations and some on the value form dudes too so we've done all of that and we've done our introduction now we're getting into the kind of history of the controversy in a bit more detail i find the book's structure a bit repetitive. I don't know uh, if it needed a better editor or something, but let's get into it. Um, so I always go to Lexi first. So let's go to someone different first. Emmanuel, <laughs> you were first last week. Derek, do you want to take up the introduction here to the brief history of the controversy? 
Sure. Um, so basically, it talks about the reemergence of D Dimitri's laborless theory of value. And I'm noticing a trend that in the 70s, every dead Russian who ever said anything remotely partially dissonant gets resurrected somehow, like by necromancy. But anyway. Um, and then he, he, he just basically says, I'm going to summarize these <laughs> debates in the introduction. <laughs> um, and um, he mentions his anti-Wiggish perspective on the controversy. So he does not think that this has been a progress of of knowledge as so much as a a muddling or a mystification. Um, and that's three point one. Okay, very good. Let's just crack into three point two. I don't think there's much I kind of rehashed a lot of that stuff there before. So he's going to get into three point two. Maybe I'll take this one. Uh, Dmitriev to uh, Dmitriev's laborless theory of value. Okay, so he's talking about this kind of obscure Russian guy that kind of came up with this stuff uh, initially. Does it have a date there? It does. Does it have a date? Um, he said the Shrafa was the first guy. It was supposed to be the only person outside of Russia to have a have a copy. Um, which has probably helped him to come up with his critique of Marx's capital. Okay, let's see. Dmitriev argued that the rate of profit was physically determined in Ricardo's theory, and he set out to defend the notion that is physically determined in reality as well. Okay, let's see what else we have here. Uh, just um, to jump in about the date, this is 1897. Okay. This is, this is early, like, what... Does anyone know the context for what what Dmitriev like came out of? Is he like an early proto marginalist or something? Like I I felt like question. I didn't get that from the chapter. I felt like I got how he was used, but not how he came about. Okay, let's have a look. What is his what's his first name? Does he even get a name? He doesn't even get a first name. Hmm. So, um, not sure. Maybe somebody can. In the chat, or somebody, one of the some of the people can uh, somebody can see if they can find out who he was. Um, okay, so it says here that he basically he kind of followed the physicalist critique all the way and pursued the logic of this argument to his conclusion that there could be profit even if no living labor were performed at all. Let me highlight this. We can imagine a case in which all products are produced exclusively by the work of machines, so that no unit of living labor participates in production. An industrial profit may occur, a profit which will not differ essentially in any way from the profit obtained by present-day capitalists. Okay, so this is following it to its logical conclusion. I don't have any problems with that. You know, that if it is a physical one, you know, you don't need values in a physical one to create value. You don't need labor time to give a profit rate. So it seems to me entirely consistent Mm -hmm. Yeah, if you're just looking at it in production of use values. Yeah, in physical outputs. So, so let's key. Um, okay, so this is interesting. This is like the first kind of math we're going to meet, which is an incredibly simple bit of math, but it's got some. It's kind of kind of staggering as a mathematician that this could um, slip by. 
people and not be critiqued as a flaw. So we're going to look at the case where uh, the machines are creating machines with no labor involved. Okay. So for our purposes, it'll be sufficient to study Demetrius' proof. Okay. So let's have a look here. What are you saying? We get to this equation here. Can, I, can everybody see this equation here? Yeah. Okay. So we have 5P. Yeah. Which is, there, there's, there seems to be an issue with your screen sharing on YouTube. Okay, um, let me have a check. There we go. So I think you need to somehow lock your screen as the okay. as the dominant one or whatever. The, yeah, the every time we talk, it main, goes away. Main screen. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Let me give me give me a give me a second here, and I'll see if I can uh, um, present to everyone. There we go. Is that it? This should be a second now. Okay. Yeah, so finding contacts in this Dmitriev, as I've been doing, as as uh, Tom's been talking, is nearly impossible. I just want to know that. Um, <laughs> I, I did find his name. Yeah, um, me too. But I can't. I found like fifty people with that name, and I can't the, find the exact birth date, so I can't figure out who the hell he actually is. Well, I'm pretty sure this is the right guy, uh, Vladimir Karpovich Dmitriev. Uh, apparently he was born he's a russian economist born in november 1868 yeah I, there's only a german wikipedia article on this which this is the first time i've seen the word transformations problem uh which how do you pronounce that in german probably sounds way cooler um problem it does See, sound way cooler yeah. See, now you, you're whatever you just said whatever you said after that is going to be right because that sounds cool <laughs> Okay. Dan, your opinion, your ability to actually say stuff. All right. Yeah. Okay. Now, okay, let's have a look at this equation. Okay. So we got, can everybody see the screen there now? Indeed. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And okay. it's correct on YouTube now as well. Yeah. Okay. So we got 5P equals 4P plus R times 4P. Okay. So P is the right. per unit price of the machine and R is the profit rate. Okay. Um. In other words, the total price of the output, 5p, will be set equal to the total cost of the input plus the profit or markup on the cost. Okay? Dividing through by p, as Dmitriev himself did, we obtain 5 equals 4 plus 4r. And after a bit more algebra, we find that r equals, we just minus the 4 from the right-hand side, we find that 1 equals um, um, uh, 4r, or r equals a quarter, or 25%, okay? This rate of profit is physically determined. It equals 25% because the output of machines exceeds input by 25%. Okay, so the, we had four machines, we now have five. What's our rate of profit in a physicalist sense? One machine. And what's one over four? 25%. Does that make sense to everybody? Yeah, I thought this yeah. example was really great for explaining what physicalism is. Yeah, it's a brilliant example. When I read, there's like two examples in this book that made my head kind of explode and just go, oh, that, that, that's why. And, and this is one of them. So uh, so let's take, keep going. Oh, now, could, could we just stay here a little bit? Because yeah, I, on, yeah. I think, I think um, this yeah. um, really sort of um, Unveils a lot of a lot of the problems with simultaneous evaluation and why it's fundamentally incompatible with Marxist theory. Other than you know the, the, the Kleiman's the simultaneous, yeah, yeah, 
Um, so like just looking at this, um, if you just look at, you know, the, the, the fine machines that you produce, um, the, the price of that uh, is, of course, going to equal the price of the four machines that you use to produce the fine, mach the fine machines plus a profit or a markup, right? Okay, on, on its face, this seems like an intuitive thing. Like if you buy four machines and you produce a fifth with the four machines, of course, you're going to want to mark up the price on that so so that you can draw a profit, right? So on the face of it, this seems um, kind of legit. Um, however, uh, what struck me is that um, uh, in Marx's theory, like we're we're always assuming that um, uh, that things sell at their value, right? We're, we're, we're assuming perfect competition. So if perfect competition, in a world of com perfect competition, the R times 4P should be zero, or it should be negligible, right? Um, so essentially, what it's saying is 5P explain, equals 4 Right. Emmanuel, explain, explain why you think that. Right. So the, the, the problem here stems, there are many problems <laughs> with this equation. But one thing that struck me is on the right-hand side, you have 4P, so four, four times the, the cost of the machinery that you bought, right? Plus a markup, right? So the, the capitalist buys four machines. Um, and uh, you know that's the cost of production, and the capitalist is going to sell um, the five machines for whatever it costs the capitalist to buy the four machines plus a markup, right? Because if you don't have a markup, you won't be able to to drive any profits. Um, however, in perfect in, in the perfect um, in perfect competition, margins diverge uh, or, or approach zero. So if this capitalist was in a, um, in a market where everyone else was doing the same thing, the R times 4P, the, the thing that's added to it, the markup, would approach zero. So with infinite competition comes uh, margins that approach zero. So uh, in abstracting from any sort of intellectual property or whatever, and, and if this capitalist does not have a monopoly on, on these machines or whatever, the R times 4P should approach zero, right? Does, does that make sense? Well, I think this is uh, marginalist theory, is it not? But... Uh... I think what Marx is doing is he's abstracting from competition. So instead of uh, assuming perfect competition, I think he's assuming uh, like the essence of the of the yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, commodity. Yeah, yeah. He he is he is um, in 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 Marx's actual theory. Um, that's that's exactly right. But but and the, 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 I don't the, I don't know if yeah. your I don't know if your critique here is correct, Manuel. Um, I think here we're just we're just setting outputs equal to inputs. 
Yeah, uh, well, yeah, yeah, we are. But the 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 critique here is like, okay, what <sighs> what determines the R times four P? What is? I mean, Marx's theory is the that there are, there are constraints to any markup that a capitalist can um, uh, can add upon their cost of production, right? So, okay. the, the, the R times four P thing uh, is is where the problem here is. Um, or what? Where one of the problems are the the other problem is where the hell is the price of the machinery coming from? Because what 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 is actually being done here is um, he sne there there is a sneaking in of added uh, productivity that doesn't. Okay, um, Let, let's just read the next section. Let's read the yeah, next okay. section and right. see if we get on. Yeah, I think it may be cleared up for people. Okay, let me just highlight this here. Sorry to butt into you there, but. Um, Oh no, that, no, that's that's fine. Given that Dmitry given that Dmitriev's book opens with pain, pains, pain, I always mispronounce that pains of praise to mathematics, and that his work has been regularly extolled as a model of rigor, this argument is surprisingly slipshod. Dmitriev argues a case in which no labor is performed, and thus in case in which arg there is arguably no value. Yet he took for granted that the machine has a positive price. So why, why do you do that? Let's see why that's true. In other words, he assumed precisely that what we need to prove if the machine is free, he, he assumed precisely what we needed to prove. If the machine is free, then P equals zero, and it's impossible to divide true by P as he did. So in this one up here, he basically divided across by P because they all have a P in it to get this five plus four equals four R one. But if P is zero, so Marx would say that the the machine would have uh, that the price would be uh, zero because to be or the profit would be sorry the price would be zero because the machine was free. Um, so then he's dividing by zero across, and in the basic thing in mathematics, you can't divide by zero; it's undefined. So instead of finding that the rate is positive, we find that the original equation becomes basically zero equals zero plus zero. So E0 equals zero. The rate of profit is therefore undefined. Okay. So that's like a very, very simple flaw with this idea of a physical rate of profit when there is nothing but machinery doing it and no labor. Is that you can't know that you're assuming that there is a price for the thing. You know, you, you can't assume yes. there is a price because and you, you know also, if one theory says there won't be a price. And your theory says, oh, well, there is a price. We well, have to prove that you can actually divide by P. So in other words, what he actually ends up showing is that when machines create new machines without any value input, we have no idea if there is value or not. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and, uh, and, and he also assumes that the that the capitalists can just do any markup at a at a whim. No. Um and and that there well, the, are essentially the, no constraints to. Well, the markup right depends on the amount of surplus labor produced, but uh, I think in the next uh, section, exactly, he talks, he, yeah. he talks about um, right if the machines, um, they the there's yeah there's no value added to them, so we just have their cost of production, and they produce more machines. You know the. The rate of profit isn't uh, simultaneous, and it isn't uh, because 
because if it's temporal, the price of the outputs is equal to the price of the inputs because the because there is a fall in the price during the production process. Exactly, and that would lead you to actually believe that uh, you know five machines is equal to four machines, if you know what I mean. Yeah. So yeah, it should be even equal if, to uh, four fifths. So four fifths of P two equals four P one, you know, or one yes. uh, P one. So yeah. um, you know, it's a pretty kind of interesting. Let's read this bit here. There's good reason to believe that machine that the machine will indeed be free. Demetrius' fully automated economy is able to generate an ever-increasing output of the machine, unconstrained by any natural resource limitations and at no additional cost. It's thus quite plausible, at the very least, that the machine's price would quickly fall to zero. If you think about it, the machines would just start reproducing themselves towards infinity. Right. They'd just be sitting around everywhere, and everybody go, hey, do you want a, a shoemaker machine? Oh, fuck yeah, I'll have one. And like, they'd just be like growing like blackberries growing wild in bushes or breathing air. It'd just be ubiquitous. You go to infinity. Curiously, Dmitriev himself reaches analogous result when he goes to consider a system of goods produced solely by animals. Hence, he concludes there is no foundation for any of the references to various natural processes, such as the breeding of animals and yields, which do not necessitate human tending of the plants, etc., as independent sources of profit on capital. Okay, so, you know, if you walk, if you go for a walk now where I am in London, you go, up, go out into the woods or something, there'll be wild blackberries growing everywhere. You can pick them, you can eat them off the tree for nothing, you know? It, it, like, there's no reason to believe that the machine wouldn't fall into that same category as they are able to reproduce themselves towards infinity with no labor. So it's uh, strange that this example could be taken seriously. Anybody yeah. have any yep. comments? No, it's just, oh. Um, oh, you know, when I'm confronted with a mathematical argument, I think like a lot of people, I don't know, get a little nervous and if I, I could imagine, you know, like a hundred years ago or whatever, like being confronted with this smarty pants Russian economist and, you know, being confronted with a mathematical argument and not really thinking about how that mathematical argument got symbolized. And it's important, even if you're not all that mathematically literate, to understand that you can just smuggle assumptions in mathematically. Uh, like here, the two assumptions are that a P will not equal zero and that input and output can be put on two sides of the equal sign. Like, those are yeah, not negligible two, assumptions. They're very large assumptions. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, and, here comes another also one. Also, that there is nothing constraining the, 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 the market. As, as, as you said, Puya, like the, the, the markup would be the the surplus value created, but according to Marx's theory, um, constant capital, by definition, only transfers part of its value, um, uh, and there is no new value added. So where does the R times 4P come from? Uh, in in this equation, it's just made up. It comes, it, it doesn't hinge on anything. Um, it, it so, just assumes there's a rate. Like, it assumes there is a rate of profit on each machine. Yeah, it it, 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 it assumes that the capitalist can just buy four four machines, uh, slap a markup, 
on the, yeah. the price that he paid for the four machines and sell it on the market at a profit. But that's exactly what has to be explained, which is what Marxist theory tends wants to attempt. So again, I mean, you either as you know, Kleiman goes through why p should equal zero in Marxist theory. But my my point in the beginning was, you can you can also point out that uh, equally the r times four p part of the equation should approach zero uh, or should be negligible. And so what the equation really says is 5p equals 4p. The the four machines have magically reproduced and create another one of themselves. And thus the, the equation is self-refuting and, and inconsistent. 5p yeah. cannot possibly equal 4p. Let's read this next section, just the, the bit that um, just what um, Slexi was saying there is how they assumed that they were simultaneous. Let's read, this is where Andrew makes this explicit. Yet, even if we assume the machines have a positive price, Dimitriev's demonstration is marred by another fatal error. He does not prove, but simply assumes that valuation is simultaneous. In other words, that the machine's input price equals its output price. It seems to me that Marx's theory implies that they are not equal. Marx holds that the value of output equals the value transferred from the inputs inputs, plus new value added by living labor. But since Dmitriev assumes the economy is fully automated, there is no living labor, thus new no new value added in this case. The five machines output, the five output machines are therefore only worth as much as four input machines were worth. Thus the price of machine falls by one fifth, and the rate of profit is consequently zero. This last result is what Dmitriev claims to disprove, of course, but he fails to do so because he assumes rather than proves that the input and the output prices are equal. So it's like assumption upon assumption. He assumes that you, you can set them equal, and then also he assumes that uh, you can divide by P, that it's not going to be non-zero. Okay. Um, I've also heard a similar argument from... Uh... A like a follower of Steve Keen, and their and the thermodynamics one. If you're, from, do you know this one? I have. I haven't fully looked at that. He has one. He's trying to come up with an energy theory of production. Is that it? Yeah, one of his followers made a similar argument against the labor theory of value to me, where they claimed that uh, the labor theory of value is false because like gasoline produces work yeah, yeah Stephen king has argued stuff like that before and his I stuff is entirely is it I, I don't i think it's entirely uh spurious that stuff i haven't got like, into i haven't studied it it seems like a category error where you're confusing the the, the energy the potential to do work with labor which is human effort those aren't the same thing so I mean, yeah. the, the the assumptions, a lot of the assumptions that you see in these these theories are basically conflations of categories. And while it is annoying to have to parse out these fine tooth categories, it's absolutely necessary. And we have to insist that no, when you collapse them down, you're not arguing the same thing. Stop it. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's it's important to just point out, right? That there we have different assumptions. We're walking into this with different assumptions. The, yeah. the professional economists, or or you know whatever Marxists are, right? They're spitting at each other over these things and saying this is a completely irrational choice. No one no one smart could ever make this decision. 
as long as you're aware that it's a decision and you know that those decisions are are uh, justified by what you get out of them yeah like uh just i think lexi you said before that scheme was a marxist or some kind of post-marxist like well, i've he, heard him explicitly he, saying that like when he read marx first that he thought that you know it made no sense that machines can't create uh, value so right he, he disagrees with it on the very core well basic level. It's a little more complicated yeah. than that. When he first read Marx, that's what he thought. Then he put it away for a while, and he and he was like a uh, Marxist. And then one day, he was just looking at some big old, I think, oil rigs or something, and he's just sitting there, and his original intuition returns. There's no way those machines can't be creating value. And he, sort of, and he breaks with Marxism. Um, but even to this day, if you talk to him, he will defend his work as being dialectical post-Keynesianism. Interesting. So, um, and he's not okay. a Marxist in the sense that he wants to replace capitalism. So maybe, maybe you know, I think that's the criterion for me. <laughs> Does he want to replace capitalism? I just think he's just a, he's just a Keynesian. He's like a, a social democrat. You yeah, know, that's what I put him. Um, okay, who wants to? Are we okay with that? That's a very important. I think that's a very important equation for me. That's one of the most important, simple examples of explains kind of in detail why you have difficulties, why a lot of the, just with a simple equation explains a lot of some of the difficulties we're going to come across. This idea of valuing inputs and outputs, you know, and this idea of physicalism. I think it's a very simple, but kind of deep example. For me, there's, there's yeah. three or four bits in the book that you can break all the arguments down into. And this is like an example of one that we people can easily get their head around without reading 250 pages. Yeah, I, I do wish Amog was here because Amog, and maybe you can uh, speak to this, Derek, um, was commenting that Kleiman's structured his book along the lines of there's a cardinal error that leads to all these other errors. Right? Yeah. And, and this would be it this simultaneous valuation is actually probably more important even than assuming that P is, is not zero. Yeah. Like yeah. Uh, this, yeah. this ability to take this example and translate it into an equation like this, where input costs are on one side, output costs are on the other side. Um, like, well, I, I think, I think a is wrong. I think it is. I think there is one basic fallacy is valuing inputs and outputs. And that's the basic fallacy just repeated again and again. I don't really know why, he's against that or why he thinks there's more than one. But for me, that's it. I think, I think he's wrong. <laughs> well, I, I think, I think in general in Marxist economics and the, in the parts that are, you know, like correct and applicable, there's a lot more issues than just what's in this book. But in terms of, in terms of the issues that Andrew is, is arguing against, it, it does appear that all the complications come from the logic at work here. Right, it, except for value theory, which is why he doesn't address it because it actually isn't the simultaneous problem. So right, and um, yeah, the, the, there are other problems, but like th this here, yeah. When you look at this equation, it makes value redundant. Physical properties cause everything. Yeah, and there's also the uh, dual the dual systems of price and value that is also an issue yeah although this book is mostly an attack on temporal i'm sorry an, an attack on simultaneous valuation 
I think I think things get more tricky when it comes to the um, price and value stuff. But but if this book does anything correct, it argues that you cannot do this with Marx. It is logically incompatible with his work. Oh yeah, sure. But uh, yeah, he gets to um, the price and value stuff more later in the end of this chapter. This is true. Yeah. Okay. Uh, are we good to maybe do the next bit, the falling rate of profit controversy? Lexi, do yes. you want to try this one? Oh, yeah. Uh, the good old falling rate of profit. Um, <clears throat> so, um, falling rate of profit coming out of volume three of Capital. Um, uh, most of the critics are focused on counter tendencies. Um, and again, Marx lists these counter tendencies and Marx also believes that these counter tendencies can stop a fall in the rate of profit. It, it appears almost indefinitely is what he thinks. Um, so it's not all that novel that, uh, for instance, Joan Robinson and Paul Sweezy are, are, um, emphasizing these things. Um, but let's see. So even if the rate of profit may not fall, that, that, that's not the same thing as saying what the Okishio theorem is saying. Now, um, let's see if we can get Okishio's first name here. Um, yeah, Nobuo Okishio. He's a Japanese uh, Marxian economist. Um, he was in 1979. He was elected the president of the Japan Association of Economics and Econometrics. How about that? Um, so the Okishio theorem says that the rate of profit cannot fall. Not that it may not fall for countervailing reasons, but that it cannot fall because of technical change. Um, and this... This is because of the reasons that Kleiman is going over with Dmitriev's model. Um, the Okishio theorem employs simultaneous valuation, that is, equalizing the inputs and output costs, and um, and, and it, it it has to arrive at physical physicalist conclusions. So, labor saving, technological change, boost productivity, which has to cause the rate of profit to rise mathematically QED. Like, you know, if you make these assumptions, this is what comes out. And the example that he has here on the bottom of page 44 is um, if the four input machines above, <laughs> I like this word, beget six output machines instead of five, the rate of profit rises from 25% to 50%. Now, this um, only holds true if we're doing simultaneous valuation. That's never really questioned. Uh, it's not, uh, Andrew says it's not proven, you know, but I, I think it's fair to call these things assumptions, right? Like, so Okishio only proves that Marx, that Marx uh, is, is wrong about this if you make these assumptions. And if yeah. it, this specific assumption, I should say assumption, period. Um, and so he just gives a whole laundry list of people that 
end up criticizing law from a what he calls the physicalist perspective because he has some respect for the people that look at the math and are like, oh, well, then my value doesn't matter um, because that's mathematically at this point true. Like once you do simultaneously, once you simultaneously value inputs and outputs, value does not really matter. And so that's this, what you're going to get. Yeah. Isn't it like, like the falling rate of profit goes out the window, becomes physical. We see from that 4P and 5P version that, you know, immediately, it's a physical output, and the rate of profit is the number of machines. You know, this the crux of the entire argument is nearly that first equation. But I know it's, it's a very powerful equation. It's just mathematically, like literally an encoding of the opposite of Marx's conclusion. Absolutely. Like it, when it, you, it, the math. If itself. you think about it, if you think about it, it means that no value can be added because you're setting the value of one time to be the value of the next. Yeah. yeah. So it means that, you know, I don't understand. It just immediately means you can't increase your value. Now, I don't know if I'm expressing that precisely. I mean, it, it, it can't. No, yeah, it, that, like... that's, that's the implication. Uh, the the um, value can't, can't increase in simultaneous models. But surely, this, but surely they do later on when we get to some right. of the simultaneous ones. You see, the value does increase. So right. I don't know if I'm stating it exactly correct. Yeah, well, well yeah, ish, they do. But see, they're, since they're simultaneously evaluated, if you uh, increase productivity to, okay, now we have uh, 100 tons of wheat instead of 50, then the left-hand side is, I mean, Simultaneous valuation is saying that if output prices equal input prices, then they're both co-determinant, right? So um, you could interpret this as saying that it, the total value doesn't actually really increase because the, the output prices can, since there's an equal sign there in the middle and no theory of causation, it could equally be that the output Prices, you know, ah, oh, damn it! I'm not explain. I'm not so, explaining this yeah. well. But but let but you're 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 right, Tom. In in, in my interpretation of what simultaneous let value let is, it's saying that the they're they're both equal magnitudes of the exact same thing. So let let me just be a bit more precise then. That the outputs of the of the of the the, the new outputs, the five p, that you're setting them equal to uh, the price. Um, Okay, let me shut my mouth and let's just keep going until we get to some good examples. Okay, and we can explain it more, more, more clearly. Um, anything else in this part on the the falling rate of profit? Um, um well, okay, there's a lot of runs through, yeah, people. list of names which um, yeah, I'm just gonna not comment because you know I, I recognize a couple of those, but only a couple. Yeah, there's a there's some <coughs> Marxist. There's one of your guys in here. Samuelson's in there, and Romer. Romer's an analytical Marxist, yeah. isn't he? Yeah. Uh, so the schools being criticized, specifically Schraffa and the uh, uh, Ian Steedman's like uh, uh, Schraffianism. Um, that's the. Those are the assumptions for analytical Marxists. That the all right, 
they've destroyed Marx's theory. And so we need to reconstruct it with neoclassical tools. I, I was corresponding with Andrew Kleiman and I was, you know, it was, I wasn't aware of how these debates really played out. I was telling them that I really liked his book and, you know, and I, and I read his book and I read one of the analytical Marxists and he was like, analytical Marxists, those guys are the worst. Why do you like them? Like, <laughs> because they're, they're exactly the type of mathematical economists that um, just assume that Marx is already wrong because, well, I mean, look at this stuff. Like, fuck it. You know, like look, the literature says Marx is wrong. So we need to, we need to move on. Um, yeah, I, I, I'm approaching this and um, it was, it was nice. I, I got to talk to Dave Zachariah recently and we're kindred spirits and being kind of uh, analytical Marxists that want to take value seriously. Um, and because I'm, I'm convinced that Andrew actually makes some really good arguments against all of the assumptions of the, of the analytical Marxist economists. Um, yeah. So that's all I have to say about that little list of names, mostly pointed at Romer. And yeah, let's uh, move on to the transformation problem. <clears throat> who, who wants to have a go at the transformation problem? Um, should I do it? Yes, once you stop whatever that infernal crackling is. Oh, sorry, that's my key. I'm like on my phone and my keys are attached to it. Got it. Got so it. Okay. <laughs> okay, the transformation problem. Mm, let's see. Okay, so the transformation problem is uh, in volume three of Capital. And this is where Marx goes from prices, I mean, uh, values to prices. So, uh, you know, we have capitals with different organic compositions. Um, if speaking in purely value terms, they should have, each individual capital should have a different rate of profit. But the transformation into pr prices, there's an equalization of profit rates. And so that's, uh, that's the transformation problem in uh, volume three. <clears throat> and uh, in 1894, the book says, uh, no, never mind. In 1896, two, two years after um, the publication of volume three in 1894, in 1896, Bohm Bauwerk which is an Austrian school economist. He's um, kind of uh, kind of renowned or infamous. And uh, one of the few good ones, I think. Hmm? One of the very few good good um, Austrian economists, uh, I think. It's um, yeah. I'm sorry. Sidetrack. Please go on. Uh, okay. I I haven't really read him, and. Uh, Okay, so um, okay, so he says that in uh, volume one, uh, he Marx attended um, attempted uh, Marx asserted in volume one that commodities tend to sell their values. And he had promised to show real-world phenomena which appear to contradict this assertion. Do not, in fact, contradict it. But in Chapter 9 of Volume 3, 
failed to overcome this contradiction. Moreover, Baumberg argued Marx's account is tautological and meaningless because aggregate value price equalities are irrelevant. And then Andrew says he discusses this more and later in the book, which, uh, you know, I, I, I didn't really um, totally understand what Baumberg's argument was just from this section. And uh, maybe he'll discuss it further. Maybe I'll get a better idea of what his argument is in, later in the book. So is this, your, is this the idea that he says that it's meaningless? Yeah, yeah. Part, yeah. Mm-hmm. I, think he, I think he never really gets into that because I think that pretty much nobody could understand his argument. And it oh, never okay. really stuck. Is hmm. that, am I being correct there with people? Um, what do you mean? Dude, am I summing that up? I think like that part of his argument where he said they were meaningless that that never really stuck, and it wasn't exactly clear what he meant. I, I okay, so um, tautological, right? It means that Marx is making an assumption that of something he needs to prove, so that they're like. Um, basically, it's an arbitrary solution to the transformation problem. It's ad hoc. It doesn't. It uh, it fails, and it doesn't. It and it's not like a, a systematic. It's not a systematic procedure. Like it, it it doesn't work on its own terms. That that's what I would draw from that section. Okay. Um, simultaneous author critiques of Marx's transformation account are rather different. They are not based on the claim that. Marx asserted that commodities tend to sell their values, and then they do not allege that this uh, solution is tautological or meaningless. Okay, so pretty much Andrew goes on to say that um, the simultaneous critique, which began with uh, Borkowitz, is uh, much more um, effective at um, trying to, he says, prove that Marx's uh, transformation account is internally inconsistent. And they were the first to actually try to uh, prove that it was inconsistent on Marx's own terms, uh, allegedly, alleged Marx's own terms. Yeah, to correct myself, uh, Bomberk is saying that it's arbitrary and the simultaneous authors are saying that Marx's account fails on his own terms. Mm-hmm. And... Um... The um, okay, and then he says the crux of Borkowitz's argument is that Marx's account produces a difference between input and output prices, and that this difference leads to internal contradictions, specifically to a spurious disruption in, of a reproduction process. What what do you think he means by this? I think that's just what we went through. Is that when you put input and output prices equaling, that the value stuff breaks down. But and this is the, of the reproduction process. Yes, because I I think that we'll get to it later on. I think it shows that in a simple scheme of reproduction, that the actual values weren't able to uh, maintain the same level of output. 
if you had a static economy with static productivity and you know static amount of labor that when you valued inputs and outputs simultaneously you end up with problems that's pretty uh, much what it means okay so um you said he talks about this later on i think so yeah okay well i guess i'll i'll just yeah. wait again again this chapter is like an introduction it's like another introduction to me it's like i think this chapter is is kind of i don't like the structure of the book sometimes i think there's too much um introduction and talking about the mm. thing there should be more actual tables and math and you know it could do with a better editor that's the way i look at it but hey, maybe i've got um, um Bovert's, uh, argument here in in front of me if anyone Great. wants to know what what he is actually commenting on okay go yes, for it yes please Right. So this is uh, so Ben Bavak, um famously wrote a critique of Marx called uh, Karl Marx and the Close of His System. Um, and he he's basically saying that um, Marx's value theory isn't even uh, an answer. He, so here, here's the quote. Um, it is, however, not even an answer to another question. It is no answer at all. It is a simple tautology. For as every economist knows, commodities do eventually exchange with commodities when one penetrates the disguise due to the use of money. Every commodity which comes into exchange um, is at one and the same time a commodity and the price of what is given in exchange for it. The aggregate of commodities, therefore, is identical with the aggregate of the prices paid for them, or the price of the whole national produce is nothing else than the national produce itself. Under these circumstances, therefore, it is quite true that the total price paid for the entire national produce coincides exactly with the total amount of value or labor incorporated, uh, or labor incorporated in it. But this tautological declaration den denotes no increase of true knowledge. Neither does this serve as a special test of the correctness of the alleged law that commodities exchange in proportion to the labor uh, to the labor embodied in them. Manner unjustly verify any other law one pleased the law, for instance, that commodities exchange according to the measure of their specific gravity, etc., etc., etc. So he's basically saying that yes, okay, total value equals total prices equals total labor so freaking what that's that's um our works argument yeah his, his example of gravity is really stupid because you could actually measure the weight of all the things and show that the price doesn't correlate with weight uh, actually he he goes on with a mathematical argument that makes a little more sense um but the, like what 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 I what I think is important with Ben Barwick's argument is that um, Marx's chain of argumentation, as as it were, how Marx builds his his argument to end up with the conclusion uh, that that value is derived from labor actually matters, uh, because Ben Barwick is attacking it from the from the from the he's 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 doing the sort of you know value is by definition labor interpretation and if that is your interpretation then I think actually Bambarwick's um, 
um, uh, argument holds. Um, but we can put put up a link to the to, to the book. Uh, but it, it's it's a little more sophisticated than that after afterwards because he actually proves that like okay the total specific gravities of all the commodities in an economy is equal to all the the commodities produced in that economy. Therefore, you know, value is specific gravity. Uh, but that's not how Marx actually reaches his conclusions. Um, but yeah, sorry, this is a bit of a tangent, but no, I think no, it no, might no. be I think it's interesting. I think, I think it's very interesting. And if there's any like critic that I don't know if Andrew answers um, well enough, it's probably Bombark. And I think that he, he annihilates Bor uh, Borkowitz um, and spends like most of the time on, on Borkowitz, I think probably for a decent reason is that a bump. Now there's an umlaut in this name. I'm looking at an umlaut. That's got to do something. Bombark. Boom. 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 Oh, nice. Boom. Back. All right. Sweet. Um, Bowerk. All right. It's ba it's Bavirk. It's Verk. Ba Bavirk. Thank you. All right. Oh, I'm a proper European now. All right. There you go. Bavirk. Um, ooh. <laughs> if only there were some more French ones. I really like the French. Listen to Swampside chats. Oh, all the Lord. hilarity that I, that I go through. Even oh. Derek. Derek's French ones are particularly bad as well. Um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, I, I make no claim to pronounce French, nor do I pronounce the French words the same way twice either. Uh, yeah, that's right. There's no, there's no consistency. That's my favorite thing. Because you think all these guys are different authors. Who's this uh, guy? Who's but, he talking about now? No, no. Actually, yeah. Well, I, I was trying to figure out who the hell Dov was for like the longest time. Yeah, like Dov and Dobe and Dobber, and I was like, who are these three guys? <laughs> <laughs> Whatever. My my French is, is, yeah. is plenty to sneeze at. Anyway, um, where so, where this we're just we? A, we were just talking about Borkovich's, and I just highlighted a bit there. Mm -hmm. After right. some, this is talking about his uh, reproduction process. So he would basically put together a, a simple corn model, I think, for a simple reproduction and showed how if you do inputs and outputs, the reproduction process breaks down and that therefore would disprove Marx. So here's what Andrew says here. After supposedly proving this claim, Borkowitz corrected Marx, uh, Marx's account by means of a model that eliminated the difference between input and output prices and in doing so, severed values and prices into two discordant systems. So this is the dual system that we did last week being repeated here again. The magnitudes of constant and variable capital in the system differ from the magnitudes of very very uh, the magnitudes of constant and variable capital in the price system. Okay. Um, okay, so we kind of did that already this week. This is why I think this chapter is very repetitive. Can we go on to the next one? The next cha sub chapter. Are people done with this? Um yeah. Sure. Um, I don't think this much. We're going worth, to get it again, 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 again. You know. Worth noting that Bob. Yeah, I don't know how to pronounce Bortkiewicz, but whatever. Um, he was popularized by Sweezy. Um, Paul yeah. Sweezy. Yeah. Here we go. Here. Nonetheless, Bortkiewicz's correction and his alleged proof of Marx's self-contradiction were heavily endorsed and brought to the attention of the English-speaking world by Sweezy, the most prominent Marxist economist of his generation, in his famous book of 1942, the theory of capitalist development, he went so far as to call Borkovich's model the final vindication of the labor theory of value, the solid <laughs> foundation of Marxist theoretical structure. There you go, everybody. 
my God. You know, these guys get such big names. Like, Sweezy is this big name. Sweezy is a giant. A giant, and you can write, like, sentences like that. I mean, uh, Sweezy was the only Marxist economist that ever came up in my normiverse life. Like, there, I had, like, a new left burnout, like, uh, friend's dad who, like, became a doctor and stuff, but was, you know, kind of, like, chopping about his left-wing credentials. Like, yeah, man, I read Sweezy. I read Monopoly Capital, you know, like just came up. Yeah, I mean, the the weird thing is um, Monthly Review does a lot of good works kind of despite their glaring economic holes. But um, their economics, the the the, um, with the exception of Samir Amin, like Sweezy is important, not just because of his own theory, but also who he publishes and their economic theory gets flat out weird. So it's just, I don't understand how they come to some of the conclusions they come to. It's, it's certainly unique. Like you can't accuse them of, of being rank conformists. They're very like purposeful and, and being very strange. Yeah, but there's there's something about this that reflects the nature of academia though. Remember how I yeah. said yeah. academia uh-huh. like reward, over rewards novelty even more than like say capitalism does. Yeah, see how brainwashed I am, man. Um and there's uh there is something about about that that seems to come out of that kind of work, even though I think Sweezy was also like, you know, he wore a good ascot, so one can't assume he was just an academic. True. All right. We've touched on the ascot. can we move on to three point five? Yeah. Sweezy was also a big time Maoist, wasn't he? From what I understand, monthly review is yeah of that orientation. Uh, well, I, that's not true. I used to believe no. that too, and then I actually have gone through all their all their work. Um, they pre- keeping Christopher Codwell in print. They keep a lot of um, hmm. like the political Marxist in print. They keep a lot of. Um, they keep a lot of Trotskyist in print, particularly how Dra- how particularly the coterie around Hal Draper, like a bunch of them. So they can't be said to be cleanly. Um, I mean, malice. I mean, Haymarket Books is Trotskyist, but they'll publish, you know, Rebecca Solnit or whatever. Like, you know, yeah, what I mean? but they, they employed Hal Draper and they employed Ellen Macken Woods. Oh, so um, like Robert Brenner was on their editorial board at one point. So. Um, yeah, point made. So the, the, my my only issue, my, my thing is, I think over time they become predominantly Maoist because they're interested in imperialism. That's always been a driving thing, and that used to be more of a trot thing than it is now. Yeah, um, another interesting fact uh, people might know. I think I'm right in saying this: that Norman Finkenstein was a student of Sweezy, and he was a hardcore Maoist for like a month. Mm. Right. Well, more than a month. No, it sounded like it, he spent maybe ten years. Yeah, a decade. So. It was the seventies, but for in normal in in non seventies time, that could have been a month. In the internet, he would have already gone through three phases. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so let's move on. Uh, Marxian economics is general equilibrium theory. Anybody want to take this? Lexi, have you done? You've done. Well, how about Manuel? Manuel, do you want to take one here now? Uh, nope. <laughs> oh, okay. Let me <laughs> let me try this one if you want. Yeah. Can we try it? Okay, let me try it. 
Okay, so this one is going on about how Borkovitz was very aware that what he was talking about was uh, diverged markedly from Marx's. Okay, so uh, let's have a look here and see where he talks about this. Um, yeah, this is interesting. Um, oh, yeah, it's the Leon Walras thing. Yeah. Yeah, As Borkovich-style yeah. models came to be a standard tool of Marxian economics, it became natural to think of their properties as, uh, as properties of Marx's value theory and to seek textual justification for their Marxian heritage. Okay. But like that, um, moreover, input-output techniques became a popular tool of economists, ready and waiting for Marxist, uh, Marxian economists to apply them to problems of value determination. To do so, they had to value their inputs and outputs simultaneously. It was in this environment that there arose the nearly ubiquitous interpretation that Marx's own value theory was simultaneous, if not indeed physicalist as well, which is kind of crazy. Um, Borkiewicz saw the situation more clearly. He, he vigorously attacked what he called Marx's successivist conception of determination, in which economic factors are regarded as a kind of causal chain in which each link is determined in its composition and its magnitude only by the preceding links. Like that is a... Uh, that's the know, fucking theory, man. That's the whole fucking theory right there. <laughs> that, like, yeah. like even, even if you were to think about you're not really into economics and you're more into the philosophy of Hegelianism, that's Hegel. You know what I mean? <laughs> like th there's no defense for me to seeing Marx as not... A success of us. In fact, also, also, like this is the fucking definition of what determination means. Yeah. <laughs> like if you if you don't accept um, the law the of chains, yeah, and like every every link in the causal chain determines the next one, then you know w what the hell do you mean by by determination? All you can speak of are you know equal magnitudes, um, which is, I suppose, what leads them to simultaneism, because simultaneism, by, by nature, is a non-causal theory, right? This is what we said before, that, you know, in, in simultaneous evaluation, value increases cannot possibly happen, because there is no causality. Um, uh, the output prices, the total output prices equal total input prices. And so they're both equal in in value. So there is no increase going on. There's no causality going on. Um, yeah. So, yeah. Well, I think it does increase, but it's in physical terms. It's not in value terms. Exactly. Yeah. Val use values increase. Like you get more wheat or, you mm -hmm. know, more machines. You get five, five machines instead of four. But the e equal sign there in the middle says that, you know, the, the value of the five machines is exactly equal to the value of the four machines. So there is no, there is no, you know. Plus, plus the rate of profit on the four machines. Plus, plus the rate of profit, right? But the, but the. That's uh, an assumption. That's an that's, assumption. That's, 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 that's an assumption. Profit. So yeah, what, but, but even given that, so like the output price is equal, the input prices plus some conversion factor, right? The conversion factor is not value. <laughs> they're, they're they're both equal magnitudes still there is no there is no greater magnitude 
at the at one side of the equality sign than the other, except for now there are more use values. But it 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 it, it sort of reduces down to to use values and 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 thus to to uh, physical quantities um, because there is no let causality. Me, let me read this next bit, which is good. I think against this, he praised the school led by Leon Valras. Cuckoo Cachu. You're waiting for that one, Lexi, I can tell, for propagating yeah. a, a more realistic view of economic relations in which the various economic factors or elements condition each other mutually, which I don't know, I just do not understand that, but let me keep going. Although Borkovich spoke of successivist and mutual determination, not temporal and simultaneous determination, which are now more common terms, they meant much the same thing. You know, so Borkovich was very aware that what he was proposing was the opposite of Marx's. You know, yeah. over time it's all right here. So, yeah, Kleiman has unveiled the historical conspiracy. <laughs> you know. I, I think yeah. it, if you're, you know, to be pluralist about it, it's just so clear how different the intuitions motivating the models are. They are just opposite intuitions. And when you reach these yep. sort of points of debate again how do you decide between these two sets of assumptions cash value what do you get out of it right and so the point is not to spit at ah oh, i can't believe you would make another decision the point is like look look what's going on here <laughs> this person wants to do something else that's what that's what's going on like yeah or, I, I have no problem with people doing something else you know what i mean and and and, uh, and and Andrew, I think respects uh, Bortkovitz because Bortkovitz knows Bortkovitz is doing something else. Yeah. Um. So just can we just key into this small little phrase, which I find very interesting? The various economic factors or elements condition each other mutually. Can anybody really explain what the hell that actually means in reality? Yeah, that's that's uh, Srafa's argument, just stated in in different terms. So, uh, any economic factor or element that is used in production or consumption um, determines all of the other factors or elements. So, if you have um, corn, labor, TVs, and 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 books, say th they're all co-determinate of each other so they're all mutually uh conditioned by any commodity is mutually conditioned by all other commodities how does that make any sense how can we make uh, like a cake be conditioned by somebody building a nuclear power station well it is in physical terms like in in it, it analyze is the amount of commodities produced in an economy or you know the the wealth uh of an economy as described by marx i.e how many use values there are um you know essentially you know this is true um but it has nothing to do with capitalist production or, or commodity production it's just saying that okay so how how is you baking cake um um determined by you know the productivity of the of, of a
nuclear power station or whatever, nuclear power, power flower, and the more electricity and power they have, the more flower they can produce. And the more flour there is in the economy, the more cakes are produced. But that's only analyzing use values. That's only analyzing physical quantities. And as long as you do that, well, then, yeah, you know, um, it's true. And in, in energy terms, for instance, in, in terms of entropy and, um, and uh, energy conversion, it's, you know, it's true that all factors uh, condition each other mutually. But... Um, there is that has nothing to do with the Marxist theory of values or prices and, and certainly nothing to do with how things work in a capitalist economy. It is kind of dialectical. There is a sort of mutual co-determination that is uh, kind of ghostly. <laughs> dialectical in the in the Maoist folk magic sense of dialectics. <laughs> No, well, like, in, the my, sense, my, my in the sense of mutual co-determination, in the sense of uh, unity of opposites, second law. Like, yeah, in so, term, Mal, so like Dallas. No, 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 this Dallas. is Engels, though. That's the sad thing. If if you if you want to like piss on all that, you have to take it to Engels. But do, uh, do you hear me saying nice things about dialectics of nature? No, I, I, I don't. I don't. No, but uh, I, to me, like I suppose everything is somewhat mutually determined, but like not without right. time. That's the main thing. You need time, and to, you know. Yeah, yeah. That's what the folks. I mean, Mar Marxist theory is a theory in which productivity matters, and in in physicalist theories, productivity doesn't matter. Uh, except there is now more stuff, but the value of the more stuff produced is exactly equal to the value of everything that came before. So there's no there's no increase going on. Um, at all, uh, there's no increase in value or or, or anything. So yeah, um, I mean, you know, there it's not it's not exactly folk magic. There is even in physics like mutual co-determination. There are instances of this in science. So I don't want to be too dismissive of that set of intuitions. I just think it yeah it doesn't work for an economy. Like yeah. this is quantum pairing. Okay, let's yes, exactly let's what jump. I was thinking of, Tom. Yeah. Uh, let's keep going. Um, um, okay, so he just goes on here to talk about how uh, this simultaneous general equilibrium model uh, school, school that led by Walras, has become dominant in neoclassical economics. Um, and um, <laughs> you know, and he mentions some like other dudes here. You know, certainly somebody who I would have an awful lot of respect for, like who's the mathematician Van Neumann, um, Bortovich, Dmitriev, Leontiev. And Schraffer, you know, they've set up the foundation of Schraffianism and most of modern Marxian economics. So, mm -hmm. essentially, this equilibrium school now is entirely dominant, bar a few uh, holdouts like Kleiman and Freeman and Karkedi and uh, take your pick of some other people. There, so there, are, there, are, there are increasingly people outside of Marxism, too, who are dissatisfied with this kind of equilibrium economics. And... Uh, if I'm not mistaken, yes. is, is Steve Keen one of them? Like, isn't isn't like he skeptical yes. of this kind of equilibrium? Yeah, like a lot of the post Keynesians. Like, so th th at first when I was reading this book, I'm like, hold on, am I going down a crank hole here? And I'm like, I did some research. I'm like, yes, but it's a pretty big one in at a, in a you know a counter hegemonic to an ideologically important uh, school of thought. 
Yeah, so it is a current call in the sense that it, it, it's a minority view, but it's a minority right. view that's held by, so it's not just held by Marxists that, that this is weird. Um, and I yeah. think there's a lot of MMTers and MMT Marx hybrid people who also think equilibrium um, assumptions are stupid. Oh, things are getting hot in here. No, it's true. There is a uh, Steve Keen has been doing his uh, his modeling and uh, that he's been doing, uh, which are essentially temporal, which is very ironic because in his book where he trashes Marxism in the what was what's that book called again? I keep forgetting it. What's it called? Debunking, Debunking economics. Debunking, Debunking economics, economics, which is a good book if you rip the Marxism section out of it and set it on fire. Yeah, and at the very end of the Marx of the of that one where he's critiquing, he does the transformation problem, and he does all this stuff about the, how you value inputs and outputs at the same way. At the end, he has like a one-liner about the TSSI, where he says that oh, these guys try to reform it by adding temporal, you know, time into it, and then he just oh says something God. like, "Yeah, but come on, lads, give it up now. It's over." You know, and he spent the whole first half of the book when he talked about neo uh, the neoclassical economics, talking about how there's no time in it. Now that's rubbish. You know, it's hilarious. He just uses the exact opposite arguments to 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 uh, suit his argument. So right. So so you know, I I, I thought Derek was was uh, was doing a hit on you there, Tom, but. Uh... <laughs> Because, because you're the MMT, you know, TSSI is compatible heretic. <laughs> I am a TSSI and I'm also an MMTer, but uh, not as in. How? What do you mean? Well, I'm, okay. If you're an MMTer. None of the models, it, remember, none of the it models. Breaks, it breaks a single system. It doesn't. None of the models that we have in here have money in them. Remember that. Like, uh, a, 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 a melt. Uh, the melt. Yes. Wait, no, wait, wait. Stop, stop <laughs> going on and let me talk. Specifically, uh, the melt is a way of introducing changes in in uh, in in the in the money in the amount of money in the economy. Um. So we'll see that very later on. Um. So so you can use the melt when the when you can say that the the, the there is inflation in the economy. So all of these things do not deal with commodity money. There's nothing to do with commodity money in any of these arguments. But let, let's not get there, because uh, we'll get there later. Uh, with uh, why don't you come over here and we'll take it to the pub and I'll smack <laughs> you in the face. so well and you left yourself down so badly. <laughs> I, I thought it was pretty good. Uh, we we yeah. have we have uh, we have one thing from the chat. Um, ben Bavark destroyed the Austrian economy. Um, that's yes. that's, that's, that's pretty that's strong. True. Um, no, I, I I keep a close eye on on my enemies, as it were, and uh, most of the people who are really into Austrian econ economics don't read Ben Bavark anymore. Um, except for his uh, theory on um, uh, the time value of uh, money um, and interest and so on, uh, which is a shame because he is fucking the only rigorous <laughs> Austrian economist out there. I guess that's why they don't read him. Yeah, um, I was about to say, like, he, he's good and, like, the stuff that no one reads by Schupeter is good, and oh, yeah. what everybody, us, everybody does read is generally pretty terrible. So, 
Yep. Okay. Can we keep going? Let's keep going. I think we kind of don't have to dead. Looking, Let's talk. I've been looking at Leon Juarez's name for a half hour. Let's move. That's right. Valras. Valras. Yeah. Let's have a look. Less bad jokes. I'm the only one allowed to do bad jokes on this podcast. No, joking. Save the dad jokes for the dads. That's true. Dad jokes. Let's see now. Chapter three or two point six. Who wants to talk about the master's tools? Anybody have remember what the hell this is about? Uh yeah, of course. Um so I always found this deployment very funny, but just to briefly go over the the um the title. The Master's Tools is a reference to um an Audrey Lord um quote. I, I love the way that he deploys this because it is such a radically different and sort of awkward context. But here it is. I suspect that Samuelson, Paul Samuelson, who we're going to get into, uh, may have understood something that Audre Lorde, the African-American lesbian poet, wrote about some years later in a different context. The master's tools will never dismantle the master's house. They may allow us temporarily to beat him at his own game, but they will never enable us to bring about genuine change. And so this, has, this actually sums up the section pretty well. Samuelson may have understood, in other words, that simultaneous valuation is incompatible with Marx's critique of political economy. Given Samuelson's exceptional, exceptional abilities as a mathematical economist, this is not unlikely. He may thus have suspected that the tools of equilibrium theory would help reshape the views and research of young radical economists who adopted them. The disintegration of the Marxian school during the last 30 years suggests that suggests that its adoption of these tools has indeed had a profound effect. So the basic thesis of this section is that, and this is my favorite part of this chapter, is um, an actual like big deal economist, a Nobel laureate. Um, He was giving a a National Science Foundation grant uh, to talk about Marx. and apparently he had his ass handed to him in a debate with Shroffa, who the more I look into Shroffa is like the James Bond of economists or something. Holy shit. Um, anyway, <laughs> um, but, Impressive, after, but yeah, after, after getting his ass whipped by Shroffa um, in, in a publicly in a debate, Samuelson takes it upon himself to, um, Kind of basically promote, promote uh, Shrafa's like you know revision of Marx as a um, as a radical alternative to to mainstream economics and to classical Marxism, and and that you know if you if you young whippersnappers really want to be serious about you know the rev and stuff, kids, what you should really be doing is taking these neutral modern tools and <laughs> applying them to your you know radical theory. And if you don't really see the assumptions embedded in the math as ideological, I think this is very seductive. <laughs> like I want to use the sharpest tools of my time to make a Marxist point. And so if you don't 
recognize that embedded in these tools is an ideological assumption, more or less. And again, it can be a valid scientific assumption, but it happens to support capitalism the way it, the way it r runs, the way it processes an argument. And um, I think Kleiman is successful in arguing that Samuelson might have had like duplicitive motives here, which is, again, this is conspiratorial thinking. This is, you know, a bad faith reading, but it's also sensitive to that common ground between error theory and, you know, ideology, right? Like where, why is someone making, and why is someone who isn't, you know, isn't normally a Shroffian, he just sort of popped in for a little bit. Um, why, why would he promote Shroffa in the, what is it? What did he say in this age of, um, he were, oh yeah, this age in of Leontiev and Shroffa. Yeah. Which led Levine. I don't know if that's Andrew Levine, but I'll, I'll have to look into that. Um, <clears throat> this age of, so Levine writes a paper called this age of Leontief and who? <laughs> like, um, so as Derek was saying, um, Samuelson was doing some necromancy on Shrafa. Yeah, I mean, this is this is something I I really am uncomfortable with, but I think Kleiman may have stronger grounds than normal. There is a tendency, um, not so much in this book, but also in like speeches and stuff, to see all of everything that is not TSI as a conspiracy against the true Marx, and that's not serious um that's not a serious way to think and it's discrediting but with this samuelson there's enough like corollary evidence that you have to at least ask what's up like it doesn't seem yeah. like, like the, it, it doesn't seem like samuelson what would have made this this unthinkingly particularly given his personal animosity towards towards Shrafa in some ways. So why would he do this? It was against his own assumptions. Physical, like he was a marginalist, not a physicalist. So like, why would he encourage this unless it really was kind of to put, you know, the worm in the apple, so to speak? I think it's, I like, I don't have any problems with it. I think it's highly likely that Andrew is correct here. And even if he's not, it's kind of irrelevant. It's not irrelevant to promote a conspiracy no. theory as a serious yeah. thing. Yeah, no, I, 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 I concur with with you here, Derek, and um, um, I'm, I'm, I'm going to do a, a a Derek thing myself in pointing out something that's you know tangential to this, um, but that might bring some context into it. <laughs> um, so, uh, this has nothing to do with the text itself, but I think it's also sort of important to keep in mind-ish is that um, Kleiman also believes in um, in that the technology available today is specifically capitalist. So he believes in, in, in capitalist technology theory, which is basically saying that um, it's basically the, 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 the argument of the master's tools, right? So... Um, whatever the future socialism will be, et cetera, we can't necessarily use the tools and the means of production and our computers, et cetera, uh, that 
capitalism has built because ultimately all technology created in capitalism is created in order to serve um, uh, the interests of capitalism, which is sort of except sort of except echoing for, the argument here that um, except for, except for the hammer and the sickle, except for the hammer and the sickle, yeah. So so in 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 the same sort of spirit that uh, Lexi so eloquently laid out uh, with the sort of uh, the sort of spirit of of this argument, he he makes much of the same argument with. Uh, with respect to neutral technology, saying that, you know, no, there is no such thing as neutral technology because it's all there just to serve uh, the interests of, of, of capital. Uh, and in the same way, there's no neutral tools in, in economics and so on. And I think, Derek, you're, you're, you're right to point out that this is, this is um, at, at least to me, sort of a weak point in an otherwise very rigorous, uh, very rational and very sort of uh, neutral argumentation. This is this is sort of where we're leaning a bit into murky grounds of, uh, of conspiracy. Uh, I, I wouldn't exactly say conspiracy because that's too deterministic and that's too hard a term, but it's... I, you know, I have a higher opinion of, of this section and I would say conspiracy. Because, yeah. Like I would say, there's a bit of conspiratorial thinking here, but but again, um, I I don't think he's wrong. <laughs> I mean, no, I, I don't think he's wrong either. I'm just saying, if it isn't right, like if you if you're, if right, you're right, right. Forth in the description of conspiracy, like no, actually, if I, I mean, fuck it, no conspiracy theory is 100% wrong, right? The, the, they all have some sort of nugget of, of truth. I'm just saying. It's not a. It's not enough for me that it's not wrong. If you're putting forward or hinting at a conspiracy theory, it has to be right. And, and yeah, and and when you bring in some things, Clement says outside of this book, um, it, it it is relevant, and it's relevant in a way that basically anyone who disagrees with with any part of this in any way can be, including MMTers, by the way. Uh, Tom, yeah, um, Tom, are all deviant heretics who have been, mis you know, led astray by enemies of Marx, and those enemies include everybody who calls themselves a Marxist. Well, just just to let you know, I asked Andrew about the MMT, and he put me onto a guy, another Marxist who was into the MMT, and he's also had a lot of uh, to do with um, Professor Michael Hudson, who is an MMT guy. Marxist too. So I don't think Andrews is allergic to MMT as you guys claim. He certainly, uh, I talked to him about it and he didn't have problems with it. But anyway, let's move on. Huh. I, I I don't have any problems with, look, I don't have, I don't have, I, I just don't understand why people think there wouldn't be conspiracies against Marxist economics. I just think you had the fucking Iraq war. You think that there's not going to be a conspiracy against Marx. God damn it. Like to me, it's like, well, yeah, but that, that's, I mean, honestly, me, honestly, I'm gonna this this Tom is like a, a thing that shows up on your show a lot where I've actually like wrote you letters chastising you. Yeah, uh, so close. So, um, like, but you know, like there yeah, are conspiracies I'm, in the world, oh, and yeah, Marx are. is a massive threat to the establishment. So it would no, be reasonable. Not. That's to actually the funny thing. Marx is not a massive threat to the establishment. That is the, the has been. Of course, he has. He's really? the biggest threat ever. 
Yeah, the biggest uh, ideological threat ever to this. I think like, okay, okay. So, so here's here's my big beef with your argument here, Tom. Like, I I don't. I don't exclude the possibility that, okay, one, yes, I agree that, you know, Marx's economic theory is a massive threat to the powers that be, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and I also don't exclude the possibility that there is a big academic conspiracy out there, you know, out to get you if you, do, if you do proper Marxists, you know, uh, value theory or, or something like that. Um, but the, the the thing about this book is that no one understands Marx's value theory. Like no one would under, no one understands the theory well enough to have a conspiracy or, or in order to suppress it because they wouldn't recognize it even if it was right in front of them. Like the 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 the, the reason that this book exists to me sort of is is my argument against why there is a, you know or, or why there why there should be uh, an academic sort of conspiracy uh, against Marx's against Marx's theory, because if only Kleiman and Freeman and a couple of others have, you know, succeeded in producing it, um, reproducing it rigorously, then, you know, how on earth would that affect Samuelson? Like it, it doesn't. Look, I just think, I, like, I've worked as a professional poker player, and you make decisions on, on on probabilities all the time, and you have to make decisions, you know, on limited information. And all I'm saying is that to me, it's a fucking slam dunk. I call, I win a lot of money. That's all. That's all I'm saying. I'm not saying it's a hundred percent, but but I call and I win a lot of money. Right. Tom, what, what produces your surplus value in the poker chips, then, Tom? Sorry. What, what you know? Sorry? What 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 is your what is your um, labor theory of surplus value in poker? Then Tom, like you, not, <laughs> if, if you if you win all of the poker chips here, it's not like, productive labor. <laughs> labor. You're just getting, you're just siphoning value off some poor bastards. That's all you're doing. It's buy cheap, sell dear. It is. It's just like working in the working in the city of London. Right. Come on. Let's just keep so, going. So, so, last thing. Last thing I'll say about this. Um. So. Um, Whatever. I would like to yeah. comment on this for a second. Yeah, yeah, come on, please. Yeah. Um, I kind of was, I kind of wasn't so um uh, fond of Andrew's thinking in this section and the next section, mainly because uh, I don't know, he kind of attributes these shifts in thinking to uh, you know kind of like the great man, Samuelson. And he isn't... I would have really appreciated a more materialist analysis of why these things happened at this period of time, why people yeah. shifted yeah. Interesting. Yeah, this has occurred to me, too, about a lot of the, a lot of the way we think about this from this book. Um, and, I, um, and I've said this before, is that there's a whole lot of volunteerism around academics who are somehow driving everything as the, as the agents of change here, where I just don't have any evidence for that. I mean, I, I come back to the Doug quote that conspiracy theorists aren't paranoid enough. Um, <laughs> and I think this is actually kind of an example of that. 
we, you know, all right. I remember what I was going to say. So the first thing is, you know, I actually do think there are neutral technologies and neutral economic assumptions. Not all of them are. Some of them are patently ideological. Some of them have a clear ideological cash value. And some of them are more or less just a tool. And in this case, Samuelson being as good of an as good as a, of a mathematician as he is, having the agenda that he does, and um, look, I'm not saying that Samuelson needs to have a willful intent to deceive for for this to prosecute. I don't think that he would look at this as deception. I think he would think of it as putting people on the right path. But even then, even if you see society as you know, multi-level selection mechanisms to try to stabilize itself, which I tend to. I still think there's room for enough evidence to have that poker player suspicion of like, is this guy, is this guy doing what I think he's doing? I think he might be doing what I think he's doing. He's bluffing. Uh, um, I kind of thought Andrew was just thinking out loud in this period, in this section. <laughs> it sounded like he was like, why did this happen? Uh, you know, it just sounds like he's thinking out loud. And, uh, you know, I've, I totally believe that these shifts in happen, these shifts in have, uh, thinking happen due to, you know, the state of capitalism at this period, starting in uh, er, early 1970s. You know, we look at uh, uh, the cyclical variations in profitability. You can see that trends in thinking in the um, in these depressionary periods do tend towards um you know in the previous in this marx. depression huh they tend towards marx I don't well, they also they, they also don't. tend I, I think that they do tend towards like here he says thatcherism and uh you know acceptance of uh you know rejection of marx you know, we see in the 1970s and 1980s, 1990s, we see generally a rejection of Marx. Well, I mean, than it. it's interesting to me because if you read his other book, it actually does cover the same time period. And it's not just like Thatcherism comes out of that. New, uh, like, labor in the UK uh, neoliberalizes before Thatcher came along. And, like, uh, Clemens were aware of that. So... You know, may, I would say, like, Clement would probably say he's just trying to deal with the specific instance. And while I'm coming down hard on conspiracy, on the conspiracy angles of it, um, I do think that with Samuelson there, that since it's, since it's a viable interpretation because of both the circumstantial evidence and, um, this is important, it only involves one actor. Um, so all it requires is one person arguing in bad faith and that's why it's convincing but when you start looking at it as a larger academic conspiracy which this right does lead to if you take it to i don't buy it at all i don't buy it for a moment yeah like i can but buy it samuelson but like well, I I definitely... he's not coming up with the argument himself samuelson remember he's just basically tying it all together all of these arguments have been made over the years always never usually by Austrian and right-wing economists to trash Marx. And he put them together and he, he put some of Schraffa's stuff in there too. And he put together this argument. But like, let's not think that someone like him has not got a place in society, certainly in the economics 
industry and uh, academia in, in, in the West. He was the number right. one guy. You get the best guy talking and doing a detailed mathematical review and a critique of it. And it's in the biggest journals and getting huge amounts of, uh, it'll get a huge push. You know, that is going to have, you know, he well, this whole idea of, you know, the great man theory, there are certain individuals who've got more power than others. He's got, he had a platform. It got pushed, and he's smart yeah. enough to know how to do it because he was a yeah. fucking genius yeah, but you're level. Yeah, materialist enough, honestly. I'm going to, like, push Yeah, yeah I'm, not saying, a, I'm not saying he's just a, one guy, but I'm just saying, like, there are Samuelson, But Samuelson's just a, pro, uh, just a product of his conditions. Okay, fine. Yeah. But, like, so if, if we're going to talk on that level of explanation, I'm comfortable with that. But there also is, like you know, individual neurons firing here. There are like individual people. There's a, a mechanism uh -huh. going on. And sure. uh, Samuelson, Samuelson has pro-capitalist intuitions and what the society generates, especially among right. its, its comfortable, academic, comfortable academic scientists. They, you know, they have, they, they have these intuitions and he's, he's trying to get people on the right path. He thinks that these intuitions are right. That's what's animating his work. Of so, of, of right. course, he's going to promote this, okay. and it, it promotes this ideological value. Is that's not what's important to him. What's important is that his intuitions are are being promoted. Well, let's but let, I, let's talk about his intuitions for a second because we. I just heard everybody equate him with an Austrian. He's a neo Keynesian. I never um, said he was an Austrian. I said most of them were Austrians. So Baum Barbark was and Barkovich were Austrians. Those guys were Austrians. Did I say Austrian? He, he was a no. I did. I said Austrians, but he. I never he said a, he was an Austrian. He wasn't. He was a neo He was a marginalist neo Keynesian as opposed to a physicalist one. But I mean, like, um, and Traffa was a Keynesian as opposed Keynesian. to a Marxist. Traffa was a, was a, was a Keynesian and also apparently thought of himself as sort of kind of a Marxist, maybe. Um, I mean, the, the thing is, like the the, the elephant in the room. Um, is that I actually, if we look at the context of 1971 and what and what and what Strafa is doing, there is still a massive Marxist movement, like physically on the ground. So yeah, there is that motivating it, but there's also emerging neoliberalism, which was anti-Keynesian. And I'm using neoliberalism here in a very specific, albeit correct way, as opposed to when everyone just means capitalism. Um, and uh, and that kind of was, you know, I mean, you want to talk about conspiracies, that kind of was a conspiracy, but it was a consp like, like Samuelson's fighting that too. So I can see why he would be trying to um, push all these Marxists into, into basically fighting, you know, fighting for Keynesian. Exactly. Fighting for Keynesian. You know, Absolutely, and to me, that's to me where, where I kind of agree with Lexi. Even though I, I, I just want to remind people of why the historical material stuff is important because all this is happening because of crisis of profitability that neo-Keynesianism can't seem to explain. All right, that's the larger context for this. Can we can we move on because we're all like we have our opinions and we're just going to keep going at for ages. I think we kind of all. I am right, so we may move on. We may move on. Derek has been kicked off. How can I? I can't actually kick Derek off. Can I see? No. I can't. I can't eject him. Will I eject him? <laughs> no, I won't. Right here. Derek, do you want to do this next one then? 
the transformation of physical oh, quantities. God, sure, since I, I since I was a jerk, I deserve it. Um, <laughs> I'm only really joking. I'm joking. <laughs> no, 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 no. That's, that's in, it's interesting because it, um, you know when, when we're criticizing, you know the the book and the milieu that surrounds the book. Well, um, the, this paranoia comes up and this tendency to look at things ultra structurally like or inversely as a conspiracy right um it interferes with the ability to scrutinize these arguments right it does i what's interesting to me um going through this dual system stuff and again i feel like does anyone else when they read this because these are the parts that feel like they're written for economists who are more who know these debates more um, that you're reading like the begots in the Bible. Um, he, I, he, he said begot like earlier in the chapter. Yeah, I mean, like I do feel that way because I feel like Samuelson begot Stephen and Stephenman begots Morshimi, uh, Morshima and Morshima begets to Sheikh, who I actually know, and I'm feeling like someone I know. Um, but anyway, I think I think like when you're talking about these, you know, big. You know, usually in 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 the in a scientific thing, there's like the big guys who who do a groundbreaking type of stuff, and that's just the way people talk about it, just to make it understandable. You know, you can't talk about four thousand economists at the same time. Oh wait, yeah, I know that, but th this is also there's also a tendency in humanities academia, and it's something that I've that I deal with, and I'm not actually accusing Clement of this at all. Um, to use that to like hide arguments and to misrepresent arguments by just having the name stand in for the argument um, without actually stating what the argument is. Clement's not doing that, so I don't want to accuse him, but that's why my mind blanks, because having read tons of this material, whenever you start going through things like that, I tend to like want to know, like, slow down, what, that, what are we actually arguing? Um, and I think we get to that in um, page 51. And because this gets us back to the Marxists. Instead, such uh, such problems as above uh, led Marx and economists to restrict their analysis to cases in which these paradoxes do not do not arise. The paradoxes, uh, the supposed paradoxes arising from Samuelson, Steedman, and and Morshima. Um, cases in which each industry continually produces more of its product than than it and other industries use up. This ostensible justification for this restriction are that economies must be able to reproduce themselves. And that we should follow Marx by trying to understand reproduction of the capitalist system. Yet this reproduction can and does occur when this restriction does not hold true, as we will shall see in chapter 10. This seems that the underlying purpose of the restriction was simply to expunge the perverse cases. The desire to make the simultaneous valuation work has come to dictate how capitalist reproduction is conceived and analyzed. So this to me is very it's actually an interesting point. And it's one and it's one that curts against the conspiracy thinking too is that he's saying you know once these paradoxes get point up and we see that it's hard everybody just avoids them outright so they just don't want to fall into the trap so they won't have another paper produced about them basically and so everything gets weaker and weaker because they just don't look at the, the marginal or difficult cases the arguments put forth in the response to the physics critiques were at first very weak even though the values are redundant once physical quantities are specified it argued values exert their influences by determining the physical data right 19 anyways is that true is that a which right is that anyway and the value of rates of profit set limits on the movements and the prices of the rate of profit shake which is um something i used to believe actually these and similar claims were more were a little more than wishful thinking 
in Shake's 1977 book, he also tries to reconcile physical simultaneousness with Marx's value theory. So this is where you see this kind of what do we what is the word for these now, Lexi? Neo Ricardians? I think that's what most people mean when they no. say this. No, um, no, these aren't Neo Ricardians. The Neo Ricardians are the econophysicists. These are mm -hmm. these are the single they, system interpretations. I I find that Neo Ricardian it often occurs as a term of abuse. I'm not sure who claims it for themselves. The, All right. The econophysicists uh, uh, don't I probably uh, do. don't think of themselves as Neo Ricardian. Do they? Well, I think Cockshot does. They talk. They have this idea of the value theory of price. That's what Andrew calls it. But they do seem to think that okay. prices are basically just labor time. Uh, I think. Well, um, I, I don't know. I don't Shike, know how they would self-conceive there. I, I'm fairly sure Shike is also a New York Guardian. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. I've heard Shike referred to as, and I think even referred to himself as a New York Guardian. So, like, oh, that's yeah. why. That, that, that's why. Okay. Because that, he, he's. The language Shaik uses, the language he uses in his new book is he just calls himself a, uh, in the classical tradition. That's just like a right, funny, yeah. Uh, it's like um, calling yourself a classical know. liberal. It's a way of saying something without saying anything at all. No, um, there's a reason why he's saying that, and that's because he's done his empirical evidence into the price and value link, and he's come up with his statistics saying that essentially price is value. Okay, Marx is yeah. not saying that. Marx was saying essentially, you know, prices transform from values. Okay. Right. Well, I've and, always just assumed that price was not value. That price was not value because that would be empirically easy to disprove. Um, yeah. Oh, but so he is. He has his uh, done research. We'll see it in one of the later chapters where he says like ninety-five percent or ninety-two percent of of price is determined by labor. And Andrew critiques that. That's the reason why he's Ricardian, is because Ricardo used to say the amount of labor in, right. that's in it is the price. But a Andrew yeah. says, and, and Marx would say, no, that's incorrect. Right. And, and I would, that's why he's Ricardian. But when, it, when he comes to his stuff here, his single system stuff, that would lead him to be physicalist. So he's a physicalist neo Ricardian. But, but, but like, we have an issue that he has like two separate solutions. Oh, so that's why I'm confused because a lot of these people go back and forth between incompensurate <laughs> schemas. Yeah. So, yeah, Shike did a thing where he, I think he did one of them was a single system one, or I think he was a single system guy. And then afterwards, with the critiques coming from the TSI, I think, or whatever, maybe just he was doing it anyway, he did his empirical research. And his empirical research uh, led him to be more neo uh, Ricardian than Marxian. So basically, when he it gets, comes to price determination, he, what 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 I read from this, and he, I don't, I read this into it. Um, I got it from this from this paragraph. Wielding impressive and seemingly rigorous mathematical tools, the Straffians made mincemeat out of attempts to defend Marx's value theory, particularly from Scheich, because it's obvious that that's wrong. Um, unless the proponents of value analysis repudiate the simultaneous algebra that generally have physical conclusions, they cannot prevail. They did not repudiate it, and they did not prevail. Thus, Steedman's Marx after Shafra effectively settled the debate. So basically, Scheich at all early on tried to offer this physical argument, and they get their their ass kicked by the by the by the by the Shafians. Yeah, the Shafians kicked their ass. Yeah, and then they and, and he went to become a paracletist. I mean, that's dope, right? Like, that's pretty cool. Like, we, we could give it up for that, right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, here's the thing. I mean, Cl Climan seems to be admitted. Like, if if you don't, and 
I, this is why this book is is interesting to me. If if you don't if you don't put time in, the Shafarans do seem right. Like there's there's almost no way to argue against them. So yeah, and, uh, they're correct. Back. You know, like Shafarians are correct if you value inputs and outputs simultaneously. That's it. All of these other ones are wrong. You know, they're all physicalist, and the Shafarians yeah, and, and, are right. Matter, it's a load of bullshit. It's meaningless. All you have is price in the real world. Well, you know, yeah. it's it's not meaningless as so much as it is another school. It's it's not Marx. It's something else. No, but I mean, I, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm saying something you, more. You don't out Rafa Rafa. No, yeah. <laughs> nobody out. I'm saying something. Let's go back a page here. I got something to, to show you. Just just one here, okay. like yeah. Let's look at this one. So, so what, the, the 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 one chapter, the one paragraph I actually skipped. Ah, of course. No, no. One, yeah, a bit before. So here we go. Um, let's have a look at this. Recognizing that recognition that the jewels system model was physicalist led to an equally, if not more, damaging demonstration by Morishima that Steedman played to the hilt. This is about the, I think this is the falling rate of profit. I think. Yeah. Um, and Morishima combined a joint production model, a physical input output system, in which, roughly speaking, industries produce multiple products with simultaneous valuation and found that values and surplus value may be negative even though prices and profits are positive this is why in the passage quote above steeman stated that value magnitudes are at best redundant at worst simultaneous value magnitudes are downright meaningless so like the shrafians are, are kind of hardcore when it comes to it they pretty much say you know, the only meaningful one is price. Value is a separate one. Sometimes it gives you ridiculous answers when you look at the maths, you know, minus value and all of this type of stuff, even though you've got profit and, and, and positive prices and profits. So it's like they're basically saying value is nonsense. Once you, once you uh, value inputs and outputs at the start, you have price and value is there, but it's meaningless like so that's abductio that's, yeah and and with that absurdium though means a simultane a simultaneous almost has to be a marginalist if you really take this at what i said right am i misreading that physicalist. a physicalist yeah yeah okay so there's no marginalist it's just physicalism so like so basically you know this is what andrew is saying and and the strafins are correct you know i i i am somebody who thinks they're totally they're correct Okay. In right. if, if you have them at simultaneous valuation, then value just doesn't matter, which I get, like, because it wouldn't, it wouldn't matter. Like, it would just yeah. be this. This is, Lexi, when you and I were talking about this on a different show, and we were talking about when you try to do this and you end up making value some weird metaphysical category that is unknowable. Like, if you, it does seem like mm -hmm. the moment you take out time, that does, that value becomes that. Because value must exist yeah. in time. Yeah, yeah. It, it, it's like once you value outputs and inputs simultaneously, you're you're saying that the outputs and the inputs are of equal magnitude. Um, and you know, once you do that, then 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 time time just does not exist in in um, um, in that theory and. You know, thus it becomes this sort of weird, mystical uh, thing that you know that it, it, it becomes it becomes completely 
uh, impossible to speak about anything that's related to a value concept at all. Um, right. and, and so all you have is price points at that point because price points are static in time. That makes sense. Yeah, yeah exactly. Okay. Yeah. Can I uh, butt in here and just read another little paragraph here that Derek missed again? Jesus, Derek. Right. The peculiar... <laughs> no, you're joking. The peculiar aspect of this controversy is that almost everyone was troubled only by the coexistence of negative values and surplus value with positive prices and profits. Few seem to be troubled by the notion of negative values as such. This is a deep point. Okay. How can you have negative um value <laughs> you know it seems to make sense if people are are working um if you seem to be troubled by this in simultaneous interpretations of marx's theory negative values arise even in the absence of joint production but this fact did not lead to any significant questioning of the notion that marx was a simultaneist nor did another paradox of simultaneous value theory that also arises even in the absence of joint production profit can be else? negative did anyone so, else find that like like no I I agree with this statement but that this was actually really hilarious to read out loud. Oh yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. Well because at this point they're not uh, it's not that they're you know trying to cover that Marxism is simultaneous it's, they just think if, if they're aware of this and they probably should be if they know math then they have to be afraid Marx is wrong. Right? Cuz this is Marx. This isn't an interpret. This isn't just some weirdo interpretation by Bortkowitz like a million years ago. This is Marx. Like, yeah, I don't think they think it's Marx. I think they think it's nah. Come on, Marxian. Well, like, how can they? How can they think that simultaneous valuation is Marxist? Because like they what Marx they, said. Basically, they they read <clears> the text. Make any sense? Because they they read they read like their teachers. Their teachers taught them that. Yeah, because because Marx on, was a terrible fucking teacher. I, I mean, come on. Have you gone into Capital Volume 1 blind and not Googled anyone? Like, not I actually read it blind. Not, go, not, not Same watched here. the David Harvey lectures. I read it blind. Have you done that completely blind with no... Completely blind. Myself and, myself and my yep. missus read it blind. We read the first 80 pages together. She dropped out and I kept going. I read, yeah. okay. I read it blind the first time um, and then I immediately went to outside sources. So I right. like, I did so, not even so, I did so not there are two blind. of you. I thought even. the first eighty pages or the the first section was very difficult when I read it and I also yeah, read no, it the blind. First, the first eighty pages were the hardest part, even going back through it again. But here's here's the thing about this. I'm 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 actually supporting your point, Emmanuel. I read it blind and felt like I missed something major. Me like, too. So I kept re I kept reading more volumes of it, and then I got more confused. Then I went to David Harvey's videos, and they just made me mad. <laughs> um, Why? Because of his uh, interpretation? Well, because he would just, like, wave off. Like, there were whole problems that were bothering me, and he was just like, well, this just isn't worth talking about. Let's move on. And, uh. <laughs> and um... And, and then I like read um, I read uh, Richard Wool's explanations, which struck me as just weird and kind of like actually Keynesian. And mm -hmm. then I read um, Ben Fine and Kleiman at about the same time and felt better. I mean, the the, yeah. the thing the, the thing about that I had to go through like multiple. 
this is why I say the reading that blind thing is interesting. I went through multiple things where it's like, I kind of see where this is helpful, but I also kind of don't because like when I was reading, you know, particularly volume one, because there's all kinds of elements of capitalism that commodity production is distorted in the current state because of IP and all this other stuff. And um, I was just like, I was literally thinking that for well, the first time I read it through, through, I'll be honest. I was like, well, this describes capitalism as it came into being, but doesn't describe anything now. Let's move on. And that is the wrong answer to have. Yeah. But, yeah, but so, I actually so, thought so, it was. So my point is not that, that no one, you know, ever goes into Marx's capital blind. It's that if you do, um, you will be punished. <laughs> and if, if you do, like if if you do go into Marx's capital blind, um, I did to to a certain extent, uh, not through the entire book the first time, but you know through uh, at, at at least the first maybe sixty or seventy pages. And I wouldn't say exactly maybe the first eighty pages, but like okay, say most of chapter one. Um, even so, I still got a lot of stuff wrong. Um, yeah, and. But and like, I think so, guys, we're not um, talking. We're not talking about like four guys sitting in their bedrooms reading Marx or girls. <laughs> guys, but that's not these what people, about. Tom, talk, Tom, wait, wait, Tom. Wait, wait, these wait, people wait, wait, are wait. professional economists. Exactly. When would they okay, possibly? Okay. When would they possibly have time to go yeah. through all of Mac Marx's Capital Volume One, including all of the footnotes, which is. Sorry. You know, where, where, Marx, about... where Marx conceptualizes most of the stuff and um, his um, all of his volumes of uh, theory, um, theories of surplus value sorry. Um, sorry. and capital volume two and three and do the sort of um, methodological work that Kleiman has taken decades to do. Like when would they? When exactly would they do this if they're under pressure to publish in in peer-reviewed journals? Like, I'm sorry, but the worst that's about the worst argument I've ever heard. That's like saying, really, how could an expert? How could an expert ever be an expert in this topic that they're no, being an no, expert in? Tom, oh, I, 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 Tom, no, Tom, I think it's important to pay attention to an economics curriculum it's a it's a uh it's a it's you know bachelor's master's uh doctorate of science it, it is a technical discipline most people in in those technical disciplines do not engage with the philosophical literature or the you know the proto forms of their science they don't yeah because you know that's how to science say, works no to say or to just to um say read up i'm not saying I, that they're I'm no, not saying that just, this is a good approach just, to science. I, I think being a, a, an historian and, and philosopher of science is important to being a good scientist, but that's this is not how people do these things with this mathematical what? economics. It, no, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Or, or I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Look, look, I, I don't I can't believe my ears. Are you guys saying that the that the Marxist economists were living in this subculture where they're not exposed to loads of different Marxists? Of different types and the arguments that are going on. If that was true, how could climate even ever get into a journal? 
which he did. No, how no, can no, they no. how can they ever even have a, a have a forward and back, a theoretical forward and back, if that's not exactly how it works? What what I'm saying is that they didn't have a and, reason to recon to reconsider and, the basic postulates of the theory. They wanted and, to do a theory of imperialism. They wanted to do this. They wanted to do that. They wanted to do magic tricks. No, they wanted to do interesting that, that stuff. Is, they didn't want to keep doing value theory over again. They thought it was settled. That that is absolutely not what the actual guys like Morishimo and Okishio and Steedman, the no, people no, who no. are doing... The these are the, except, these yes, are the exceptional were, economists. These are the exceptional heads. No, wait, yes. wait, let me talk. Let me talk. And they were the guys who found these odd things. And they never let those weird, obviously incorrect stuff into their brains. That is just beyond belief. If we can get it in by reading one page... Yeah, and, and we can say, that's fucked. You're telling me these guys, these big heads, professors in these big colleges don't understand these theories and not aware of them. They have to be because they actually found the fucking Actually, um, I, I can for, for sure tell you that most Marxists who work in the academia are not aware of them because most of them do not work in the academia. These aren't Marxists. You know, well, Stephen's not Marxist. He's a Shrafian. He knows exactly and precisely that argument there. Well, like, right, right. He's just right. He's, he's yeah. not a Marxist. And, and Marxists know those those ideas. All of the guys that the Kleiman and these boys are arguing with are Marxian economists. They are getting the exact same arguments that we're getting from this book. You're and actually they, most and of they the don't they accept with an economist, to be frank. Um, oh, yeah. only so, some only some of them, only like the later ones like Romer and um, um, and Okishi. These guys that are not like Marxian economists. No, we're, we're, they they definitely conceive themselves. We're not talking about economists. We're not talking about yeah. We're not talking about value formers. I I just think, you know, look, I just don't believe we're having this argument that you're saying that economists working specifically in that field can't understand simple equations and weird values that would make you think what you're doing is completely incorrect. I'm I'm yeah. Think what I'm saying is. Is describing the discipline as being it's I'm describing a discipline that's in some pretty piss poor shape. Yeah, that's that's what I think is out there. Yes. Yeah, no, I, mean, I think I think it's not in piss poor shape, just like these guys don't understand the maths. Obviously, are smart guys, they're able to do fucking hardcore math, mathematical proofs. These guys are ideological in what they're allowing in. And sometimes it might be like ideological purely, maybe sometimes it's they don't want all of their work to be wrong. And I can assume that there is that there's ego in there, but definitely, yeah. definitely there, they have to be aware that some of this stuff is because if I'm aware and you guys are able to see it, they're able to see it. They may, not smart they, may, they may be yeah, deceiving themselves. Yeah, well, actually, though, they, know, from a psychological standpoint, Tom, what you just argued doesn't make any sense because the people who are most invested are the least likely to see the problems in the things they are invested in. It is literally a cognitive dissonance issue, and it is rife in academia. And having no, worked but, in academia, I see it all the time. So, like, um, it, it's not that I think they're too stupid to realize it. Uh, and... What I, I think it actually causes them immense problems and, and whatever, but working it out so they don't have to abandon everything would be the natural recourse for most people. That's why science is so hard to like progress, actually, because of that very reason. Well, uh, you know, academics are just regular people. You know, they can just get things wrong. Yeah. I mean, there's... there, there Tom, like, there is... 
there is nothing here that um, necessitates uh, an ideological sort of, you know, um, holding your hands to your ears and singing, la, 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 I don't want to hear it, um, that, you know, that explanation is not necessary for the phenomenon of why people aren't paying enough attention to the TSSI. Um, there may be I, lots of reasons for it. In, in, in fact, I do think there are lots of reasons for it. And I, you know, I, I don't think it's, I don't think it's an extraordinary claim um, to say that um, most, most academics and most professors are highly specialized in one or two very, very specific, uh, you know, applications of their science that, you know, is read by 100 or 200 people tops. Um, and that, you know, they're, they're so spe specialized that going back to the foundational texts and, 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 and so on, written 200 years ago almost, um, is not on their top priority list. Yeah, I don't know. I, I, I don't see how that's an extraordinary claim. And look, you don't need to be you don't need to read Marx's theorem to know to find when Morishima and these boys find these weird values, they're the ones finding it. They're not having to read 4,000 pages of Marx to find it. Everybody else reads it. Look, if I'm a Marxian economist and I'm a dual theorist or I'm a single system theorist that's not a TSSI and I see these problems popping up, it would make me think like either my looking at, at Marx is entirely wrong or Marx is wrong and I have to become well, a Marxian. Concluded that Marx was wrong. I mean, that's... no, but they kept to, they they kept to value they kept the dual system. They kept values like Shake did. They they go into single system theory, even though but they you're even talking though they're about the science of a very tiny field. Like, yeah, I'm just saying. Look, I'm I'm just saying. I don't know what I'm saying. I'm just saying it's like these people. Like, not everybody who's doing science uh, sticks in a narrow field. A lot of these guys probably have tenure. They can change. They can produce. They can change their minds. People change their minds in economic theory, just like in physics theory and chemistry theory, all the time. They yeah, do they change. Do, but you don't. I actually found, entire I paradigm. Found, I just can't believe I'm having this argument. Ever. I found I, academics I can to be so, sociologically naive as hell. It's, like, like it's just also science I've ever read contradicts everything you just said. Uh, also, Tom, Tom, you you have a you have a degree in in mathematics, right? Yeah. Have you le read Leibniz and um, have you read Maybe. Leibniz uh, uh, derivation and 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 uh, and deduction his his original papers on the derivative in original? No, I haven't. Of course, I haven't. Exactly. No. That's that's my point. Yeah. Um, no, that's not. But that's not a point because. Yes, Yes, it, it is. That's not a point. You, no, 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 no. That's that's you trust. That is not the, you trust in 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 studying. Um, in, actually, one of the reasons the I'm making points. this point, Tom, is is because Marx actually did this. Um, he it's, he he studied he studied Newton and and Leibniz in original, and there's actually a, a quite an interesting footnote on this in Capital. That's a that's a tangent, but uh, I mean, you trust that if you study mathematics at a at a university today you are getting 
perhaps not Leibniz's original texts and perhaps not, you know, Newton's original notation, you are getting the modern equivalent, the, the refined, um, the refined version of whatever it is they worked out. And if you 30 or 40 years down the line, once you've gained your PhD and you're doing research work, some, some asshole called, you know, um, uh, Norwich, I think, claims that he had studied the original papers by Leibniz, and in Leibniz's original notation, um, he, <laughs> he he divides by zero. Um, okay, but it's there, precisely there's no the limits point. going on. The, and the original and theory and was something quite the different. Point is and therefore, your entire career is wrong. No, yeah. the two is wrong math. The two is precisely don't understand what I'm saying. Because your point, I, but I, I, your, wait, just, just, just let me speak for a second, right? In this, if you want to make that analogy, which is right, fine. What the equivalent would be that, that I'm studying uh, newer versions of um, of of uh, integration technique. I'm doing Riemann, Riemann integration, right? And and I, I, I'm I'm doing that, and then in one of the proofs, it, it leads to a logical fallacy. Okay. If one of the proofs led to a logical fallacy about it, it would lead you immediately to think that something fundamentally is wrong. That's your analogy. And at that point, you would go back and look at what was wrong with Riemann or the guys before him. Okay. That's the, the analogy. That's the, that's the analogy. It's not yeah. that. And, and Tom, you, that. Tom, Tom so, your, 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 your response is perfect. Um, because this is why this is why Marx was so interested in the derivative. Um, because and and I'm 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 uh, I am lifting this entirely Please. out of Kleiman's um, uh, retelling of of this story. I have not seen Marx's original papers on this, and I have not read Leibniz in original. But this is my memory of what uh, the the story as 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 told by Kleiman. And it is that um, when he wrote um, Capital, Marx would take breaks, and one of his uh, one of his fun pastimes uh, when taking breaks was studying the original uh, work done by Leibniz on the derivative. And um, apparently, in the original work done by Leibniz. Um, he really does divide by zero. Um, <laughs> he 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 ends up defining, you know, how how can you get a finite value um, from the tangent of a of a curve, which has to be a finite, you know, d defined number, at precisely a point which is uh, which has zero width. So. He does divide by zero, and Marx was fascinated by this um, because it's an apparent contradiction. It, it, it apparently, you know, it, it, it contradicts all of the axioms of mathematics, etc. And he played around with this, you know, trying to do his his own maths, which, you know, uh, ended up sucking because Marx was not a good mathematician, apparently. But the the analogy here of of you finding out that. Um, it, it led to a contradiction. That's that's sort of precisely the point, Tom. Um, because what these people are doing when they find that contradiction 
is to, you know, you, you, you always end up relying on hermeneutics. Um, did Leibniz really divide by zero? Uh, most math textbooks say, no, he couldn't. So, you know, we invent this concept of a limit. And this is exactly what they, uh... hello, Tom? I think he got dropped. Yeah, I think he got dropped. Oh, shit. That, that, happened, <laughs> that happened to me a few times. Well, let's make um, sure it's still broadcasting. The, the point being that um, uh, Marx really took Leibniz by his word, but now in modern mathematics, we go back and say, well, he didn't really mean divide by zero. Uh, he meant, you know, we, we look at what happens to small, you know, minutia changes of, of X as, as a, you know, uh, what, what happens when we nudge X just a little bit and we let that approach zero. Um, and that's the sort of, you know, post hoc, let's make the original theory better uh, and let's correct Leibniz sort of thing. Um, that's uh, that's going on in maths, and it's the same thing as as is going on in in Marx's value theory. It, I, I, that... I will say I will say this for for Tom because I'm sympathetic to what he's saying uh, in the sense that of this that like the fact that when people went to go and look for the contradictions, they ascribed these interpretations to Marx like is poor scholarship. There's no question about it, and Kleiman makes a big deal of this. But the sure. idea that it isn't super common in academia just eludes me because, like, right, you, right, right. But like it's I, I was talking to you about reading. We're going to take Marx out of this and economics out of it. I was talking to you about reading Darwin, right? right and how right. I misread Origin of Species because I read it with everything we know now, and I read it back into what Darwin said, and it's not actually there. Like, and yeah. that's what, what specifically. The fact that I didn't realize, for example, that 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 Darwin completely focused on the organism and all these gene things and everything else that we have, he did not have, which makes some of the which makes the the early rejections and complications of his theory make a lot more sense because there really wasn't a mechanism. Sure. The main point here is that to me, to sum up, that um, there, you know when you're looking back at these theorists and there's a, a, there's a logical problem, Tom, as you're saying, it's shocking the kind of bad scholarship that we see here. But I think it makes sense if it, you consider a number of factors, you know, the general Marxist capital sociology, like that's going to be self-reinforcing. The fact that if you are good at math, you're probably gonna be, you know, well-rewarded in capitalism. And yeah. um, you're, you know, you're probably not going to adapt the, a theory that needs to overthrow capitalism. And if you're, you know, if if you're not that good at math, you might just be intimidated by people, or focus more on qualitative uh, um, criterion of truth because that's what you're more comfortable with. And oh, and I mean, so I, I, th yeah, I think there's a sort of selection actually... mechanism here where you don't get the most mathematically literate people in leftism you also have terrible guru and follower power dynamics that can inculcate people with the dumbest fucking ideas any idea um so you have a, just a recipe for disaster that's sociologically emergent and i could understand and maybe even for naked political purposes might promote 
the idea that this is some kind of conspiracy because it's so fucking dumb and so functional. My 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 last thing here um, is um, I I I would be more sympathetic to the argument that this is all sort of you know uh, liberal bourgeois suppression of the fundamental Marxist truth or whatever. Not that this is the claim that Kleiman is explicitly making in the book because he's not, but it's sort of hinting towards that. No, it's far um, less structural than that for Kleiman. Yeah, yeah, sure. Um, but like th this, this happens with every economist and, and thinker. Take take Adam Smith, right? Okay. Um, even the Adam Smith Institute, and and like look at how Adam Smith is portrayed in most, um, you know, most History. college or History. university textbooks uh, in mm. in economics. Like Adam Smith explicitly says um, in an inquiry concerning the wealth of nations that um, the interests of the capitalists are fundamentally and directly opposed to the general interest of the people. Because, and, and it justifies this by saying that the, the rate of profit is the lowest in the most developed and wealthy countries. So the more wealth you have, the, the the lower the rate of profit. Thus, the interest of of capital is fundamentally opposed to the to the interest of uh, of um, wealth as such, and and to the people. How many like that's a central argument. That I mean, it's it's not like something he just mentions out of whack. It's a central argument to his entire thesis. How many of you have even heard that quote before? Like, that this means, is not something that's constrained to Marx and Marxism and, and Marxist economics. This is, um, this concerns, you know, sloppy scholarship and, you know, every, every textbook wants to weave a, a condensed logical narrative without getting too bogged down in, in the details. Um, and this, so this goes for Darwin, it goes for Smith, it goes for Simone de Beauvoir, it goes for fucking everyone who is a, you know, groundbreaking thinker and where there is more secondary and tertiary and quadrary and quinary literature um, than nice. people read the original text. Um, here, so this is why I'm not convinced by, by, by your argument here, Tom. Oh, also, um, when they discuss Adam Smith, they... Uh, exclude the labor theory of value. They claim that he had a cost of production theory of value. Have you ever seen this? Yes, no. I have. I, but the thing is, though, I was taught by um, my economics teachers were actually fairly honest to me about a lot of this. The thing they said, and they would say, that's why nobody reads Smith anymore. I mean, that's what I got. What were we yelling at each? Which I actually like turned my head against why we were yelling at each other. Oh, uh, the reason uh, that we we got. Um, I just found the, the the idea that academics were super smart and would automatically see this to be just. I don't. Any, everything I read on the sociology of academia and my personal experience in it indicates that that's just not true. But uh, fine, but like, it's so far from ideal, right? Like, and so I, I feel like, I feel like people that are like, I don't know, that impute kind of like 
mo- like motivations like this because it's it's hard to understand why intelligent people would do this if you don't have like firsthand knowledge of it. Like I, th- I think it's it's not widely known how these things break down. Maybe I mean, I'm being like it. Do, it does uh, seem to me like it should be. It should have been obvious that these were that these problems were there in some of these later interpretations. But I, I've known many people to use hermeneutics to make all those things go away without actually having to redo anything. I mean, that was that that was your point, right? And that's just a cognitive dissonance reducer. So, like, there seems like that would almost all, that would be most people's first um, inclination. And I don't know that I don't. I think that would be true regardless of ideology. Mm. I mean, you have to think about all the weird Marxist ideas that aren't economic that we see. That that aren't even in Marx that we see people bend over backwards to maintain, and mm-hmm. I'm not just talking about like street cranks. I mean academics no. too. Yeah, yeah. It's not uh, like what primitive accumulation in the third world being a um, being an example of paying people in the first world world in their value. Oh, that's kind of ridiculous. Well, yeah, but I'm just saying like. <laughs> Pick a pet theory that's come up in, in Marxism. Um, yeah, someone defends it. There's going to be someone who defends it and defends it, and they probably have more people that believe it than you think. Um, another good one. Um, I think that's, a, you know, the first world workers are exploiting the third world workers. is just really ridiculous because, you know, it's Chinese capital that's exporting the products here. They want to export the products here if it wasn't, you know, profitable for them. That just shows that their, uh, you know, profit rate equalization internationally is supporting uh, yeah. chi- Chinese another, capital. So another example of it is cut, it, related to it is everybody with world systems theory still does not put China in the core. Oh, wow. You know, I mean, like, yeah, that's ad hoc as hell. That's ad hoc. So and it's 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 also like holding on to, to to the theory as it was written in like the sixties and seventies. It was written indeed. Yeah, uh, that 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 just ignores like what happened in the last forty years. I mean, so there's all kinds of stuff like that. Hello, can anybody hear me? Woo! There you Whoa! are. We're back. Thank you. We're back. Yeah, buddy. Back. Do you know what, I, I do you know what I forgot to do? I forgot to plug it in. I plug. <laughs> no, 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 no! I'm joking. Okay, <laughs> okay. I got dad jokes. Try turning it off and on again. Yeah, I've got dad jokes, lads. I've got dad jokes. So I just wanted to say one thing: Ooh. is like, like I, I just kind of want us not to exclude bad faith as a causal mechanism in this stuff too. And I think I, bad I can, faith has has, yeah, has a place. Yeah. That's, and that's all no, I'm that's, trying to argue. That's that, all I'm yeah, trying to argue. Uh, sure, totally I, sure. I think there's a there's a you know a part of it is ideological, surely. Yeah, I mean, fuck that Samuelson guy. But well, yeah, I, I think it's 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 more of a there's a, there's another Marxist debate that we can have some other time about uh, how ideology operates if it is lying if it is necessarily false. Like what? What oh, it means for God, something to be ideological? No, that's why we're not. That's why we're moving on. <laughs> yeah, I just wanted to say, you know, like we we have no problems thinking that Lysenko had bad faith. We're saying here that we can't think that Marxists can't have bad faith. Weirdly, like, I think like, no, one's arguing, no one's arguing that bad faith doesn't exist. Like my my whole thing is that there is a sometimes there is a fine line between 
arguing for bad faith and the you know scene in Monty Python and the Holy Grail with a help, help, I'm being oppressed, and you know <laughs> now you're seeing the violence inherent in the system. There, there, there's sometimes a fine line between those two things, and you have to be very you have to be very careful when you're arguing bad faith. That's 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 all I'm saying. Yeah, no, I totally agree. Like, I think it's multifaceted, but we can't exclude it because it definitely, from my point of view, enters into everything to do with radical politics. Well, with that notion and the struggle session now over, let us now reinterpret Marx. Absolutely. Let's keep going. I can't believe all I wanted to read was one paragraph and it took about an hour. I'm sure everybody in the chat <laughs> has taken the taking cyanide pills well, okay we're, Tom, Tom, we, uh, you'd, you'd actually be surprised yeah, people are eating this up are we interpreting marks now who wants to go forth with this one how about lexi or manuel you haven't done one in a while how about you this chapter is about the new interpretation you guys remember what that was yes uh free beer to anyone in the chat who can explain what the new interpretation was Anyone in the chat who's still awake? Free okay. beer. Anyone in the chat? New interpretation. Two hundred dollars. I mean, beer. Alex Welsh. It, in here it is. Ni holds that the workers' actual money wages are the variable capital of both the price system and the value system. Slam dunk, Woo! Alex Welsh. Alex. All right. Oh free God. beer for you, Alex. Uh, term, yeah. Tell me where you live, and I'll I'll buy you free beer. All right. Cool. Um, with it's, the price system. Okay, so not the, only the, that, the, it's, it's it's also half past five in the morning in Sydney where he's writing that. That's holy God, <laughs> Shashnakovite. All right, <laughs> what is the word? What's the word? I forgot. Shashnakovite. Yeah. Um, the new interpretation holds that variable variable capital is bought with money, um, and. So, uh, Tom, if you could get the quote. Yeah, here we go. So the NI was sort of the first attempt uh, to make a single system interpretation thing. Um, and they both emerged independently, uh, as Klein says, and more or less concurrently in the early 1980s. So th uh, this is kind of a rehash, Alex. Or Sorry, not Alex. This is a rehash of basically chapter 2.2. Uh, two, the last part of chapter two point two, where he went through the um, the dual system and the new interpretation. So it's kind of a rehash. Do we get anything out of this? I yeah, it's, it's about the dualist conception of constant capital. Yeah, um, and in the spirit of, of repeating ourselves, it's that you know uh, you can't have a single system interpretation uh, without also considering the value transferred by constant capital is directly dependent on upon its the price of its acquisition so yeah, um, then I, I do it's okay for me to feel deja vu when i read this chapter like we'd already covered this yeah, yeah we, uh, he I he, don't, gives, he gives credit to the first ss si which is uh wolf roberts and Caleri. Right. Is, that, is that richard wolf that is richard wolf okay yep. so that's pretty so, good so, so richard wolf did something good no, no. R Richard Wolff is a kind of interesting, like post-Althusserian economist who, did, like, kind of saw the problem with uh, temporal valuation. So I actually have some respect for him here. Well, I mean, I, well, I do too. I just hear him. What, I'm sorry. Generally yeah. Continue. I'm sorry. I I, I fucked that up uh, with yes. uh, the with the dual. He saw the problem with the dual uh, system. System. Excuse yes, me. and he, he his is a still a simultaneous. Uh, so he's one right. of the SSSI guys. Right, okay. Right. And 
and also your guy Mosley, who you you've been reading as well. And it seems yeah. to be Ramos. If we look at here, Ramos, Ramos then switched yeah. over to TSSI. So it shows that it is possible. Yeah, so, um, so, so some people do, do once they read it, they do convert. Yeah, so that's good. but but the not the majority, it seems. that uh, Richard Wolf as well, he, the place where he's working is with a whole load of MMT guys. Do I um, say, so, yeah, I, I associate him with MMT people, like, like, um, <clears throat> and like the Marks. Uh, Richard like, Pollen, is it? No, is it yeah. Michael Pollen? Michael Pollan and those guys. Well, yeah. there was like a, some guy whose father owned like uh, some NFL team, and in the seventies, he gave him a load of money to start off a kind of a, a semi-radical, radical economics department uh, in or some kind of you know uh, body linked to a department in one of the kind of Eastern universities. And but the only access they have on their books is your man Richard Wolf. Yeah, they have I mean, some other guys there. Wolf that that whenever when I meet Democrats and they're like, well, I like if Richard Wolf's Marxism is the real Marxism. I like Marx, and I'm like, I don't know how I feel about that. Um, that's that's the look. That's the value of Richard Wolf's popularization is that it gets liberals to be sympathetic to Marx, even if it misrepresents Marx sometimes. Well, yeah, he's not that bad, you know. Like he's obviously not like what we would all uh, love but you know it's interesting to see that he's actually a reasonable theorist as well than david harvey so let's continue yeah yeah Yeah. (laughs) and and he does speaking tours and that kind of thing anyway so so he just talks about again we went through this last week so it's not that he talks about how they're a little bit better than the ni and they're better than the dual system but they still have some problems and now he's just given the historical uh, emergence here of the tssi we see here the first works were by Perez in 80 and Carchetti in 84. Uh, it's weird to me that I've never, other than in this book, I've never heard of a lot of the, the people who are sympathetic to climate. Like that is interesting to me. I've heard um, of these guys. Have you not heard, heard of, of Carchetti? I've heard of Carchetti independently. He, of this. He, he's got a new book coming out with um, Michael Roberts. Roberts. Uh, I, yeah, I've heard of Carcetti, but only because of Michael Roberts, who I associate with climate. But I've never heard of Perez other than reading this book. And they aren't referenced right. outside of – I mean, like, when I read, you know, widely in Marxist brain rot, and um, I don't see them referenced that much. Yeah, this is true. But I think that's just a, a function as well of, like – yeah, I don't know. Maybe he doesn't write in English. Carcetti is he Italian? I think he is. I think that he might is. be um, why. That might be why. But I, I have, yeah. to, ironically, he's the only person that I, I've seen cited. Okay. So maybe it's just reading the particular brand of Marxist brain rot I'm reading. I need to read different Marxist brain rot. Let's continue. There's a lot of brain rot right there, isn't there? Um. So here we go. So he basically, adherents of the standard simultaneous dual system interpretation have persistently charged that all these new interpretations are merely definitional tricks. If the alleged internal contradictions in Marx's value theory are not eliminated from within their own interpretive framework, they are not eliminated at all. So here he's getting into (laughs) slinging some mud, my style. Even Mohan, a proponent of the NI, recently felt the need to warn his readers that the TSSI manages to preserve, preserve Marx's equality of total price and total value only because it interprets his concept of value differently from how it is conventionally understood. Such critiques ignore the hermeneutic principle, which I will discuss in detail in the next chapter, that a successful interpretation one that makes the text make sense. Okay, so he's, he's, he's building us up now for what's going to be a big whole load of hermeneutics and build up a whole load of 
theory chapter four which we won't do today i thought we might get some of it done anybody have any issues with what he says there no or... i don't although i mean i think that the particular hermeneutic principle is the hermeneutic principle of charity is that you should always read the text as if it as if it makes sense if there's a way to make it make sense without changing the text itself right that's yeah. the specific hermeneutic principle we're talking about yeah and i don't think it's very controversial i no. think it's probably quite standard i um, agree one, one important thing too is that the tssi in contrast to the ssi um that with this interpretation the law of a tendential uh tendential fall in the rate of profit um is rendered consistent and repudiates via Cuccio theorem. Yeah. And yeah, we're getting into, yeah. So that's definitely a very strong, important point. And it's non-physicalist, you know? So it maintains that value is important. And mm -hmm. I think that even the SSI, SSSI ones, you know, they're quite physicalist too, I think. Yeah, because it's simultaneous. They're... Simultaneous valuation. So simultaneous yeah. single system. Yeah. So right, we've discussed we know we spent about an hour arguing over a silly point of dis disagreement. But like the whole chapter, in essence, we've gone through um for me the basic most important thing in, in all of that chapter was the five P equals four P equals four P formula. Would, would we want to put that up again and just just to rehash? Uh, if anybody else thinks there's anything else important. Um, yeah, what do I they think, think it is, and, and I, where? I think I think he could have made this uh, this initial chat part uh, much slower. I mean, much shorter. Just you know, m most of the things he um, discusses since the beginning of a book could easily be summarized with that equation. I was thinking this either needed to be it either needed to be reduced down to the maths, or it needed to be we needed more context, like. The, the balance was wrong. That, that's not the argument. The argument's fine. I just feel like from an editing standpoint, I feel like the balance of it was wrong because it feels like maybe this is really like three good academic papers and not a book, or it needs, or you need to like slow it down and really go into the nitty gritty more. Well, I, I think he's like um, on a, yeah. he's like treading a fine line between making it a popular text and in introducing the the TSSI and introducing the argument, like I th I think the mathematical arguments we're making are very complex, and Kleiman may, may might be trying to avoid going into them. Well, I don't think they are very complex. I think mm -hmm. he does go into them, like no, I he think does. when you read actual yeah. when you read actual papers, you know they this is <clears> this <throat> is the actual math that's in it in the book. So like I think. I just think well, it's like when you're when you're when you're writing for a book for one of these small presses, you don't get a proper a good editor that will actually yeah. help you structure the book. And I think it falls down on structure. Uh -huh. for, like uh, I wasn't really sure how Bor Borkowitz's argument really worked. I mean, he gave me an example of Dmitriev, but um, we'll get Borkowitz's there. system and Okishio's. Yeah, there's 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 a lot of stuff that he goes into later in the book, which is which is also a little frustrating. Like, could we hit stuff? And it's like, as I will discuss in chapter ten, I was like, okay, yeah, yeah. We will look. <laughs> we're going to get to it in chapter chapter five, where it starts to kick off. You know, chapter yeah. five, chapter seven, chapter eight, chapter nine, chapter ten. This, the good stuff is yet to come. We've only had really one equation yet. And, yeah, right. And what an like, equation it is. 
it yeah. is the equation. Yeah. It's literally the equation that, like, one equation hits us like, straight uh, in the square in the eyes. One equation yeah. to fool them all. Like, <laughs> I, I feel like, um, uh, so in in uh, Kleiman's infamous uh, paper, fourth thing on the third thing, comma, the he has this line where he said, you know, at, 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 at worst, Marx is guilty of repeating himself. And I think this is a lot of what this book is. The, the, the entirety of the TSSI and the melt and why simultaneism is wrong is summed up in this one equation on page 43 and uh, the table in 2.2. If you... Th- if you stare at these for long enough, <laughs> right, <laughs> and 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 you work through them, uh, it all sorts of it all sort of clicks into place. Um, however, in in defense of Kleiman and uh, Derek, you, you mentioned some pacing issues and, and and things with the editing and so on. And 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 uh, Puya, I, I think you have a very valid point as well. Um, in defense of in, in the defense of Kleiman here, I think most of those problems stem from the fact that he is, in this book, trying to attack all of his opponents at once while simultaneously trying to make Marx make sense for, you know, the, the first-time reader. Yeah, and those those two those two are in contradiction. So, like in this chapter, he's he is simultaneously trying to make newcomers to Marxist theory understand, you know, where is all of this misreading going on? If if what you say in chapter two and chapter two makes a whole lot of sense, um, and chapter two is like even though we spend so much time on it, it's only like twenty pages. If if that, you know, the feeling that a newcomer will have is this makes so much sense. Why hasn't other academics or, you know, what, what you know, what's the what's the big deal about? And in this chapter, he tries to lay out how it all happened and how it all got fucked. And um, in but doing so, he's also addressing a lot of his economist colleagues directly in an right. academic sense, condensing all of his academic papers into one. And I think what I've, I, I've, I've kept one thing. Um, <clears throat> I'm sorry. I, I just want to finish this uh, train of thought and then I'll, 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 uh, I'll leave you guys alone. But, <laughs> but um, in one of my dear friends uh, uh, signature. So he, he, he signed this book uh, for him. Um, he said, um, you know, dear, and then my friend, I think of this as my autobiography. Um, and I've always sort of kept that in mind while reading this, that this is, this is sort of his magnum opus. This is his grand, grand unifying, you know, debunking of everyone and everything. condensing all of his academic papers, like all of his struggles in trying to understand Marx in trying to trace, like the the, the chapter three is a great journalistic work, right? He he tries to trace everything, um, you know, tracing it back to its source and et cetera, and condensing that into 
you know, really compact text. This is, this is his life's work. And um, seen in that context, I didn't really pay attention to the pacing issues um, as yeah. you guys have, but I realized that's, that's because I, I had this dedication. I had this line, you know, I think of this as my autobiography and unconsciously at the back of my mind. Um, but so, so you're right. But, but also like, uh, I, I gotta give the guy some slack here. So yeah, the so pa- that's, that's my closing, closing thoughts. The pacing issues never occurred to me either, but I mean, looking at it, like as an editor, yeah, there, there's definitely some stuff that as soon as it's brought up, I'm like, what's that? That's interesting. Could we talk about that? And then, then there's some stuff that, you know, you go over in two chapters and you think, man, what a discussion that would have made if that was woven together, you know? Yeah, so, th- th- that's it's, it's sort thing. of it's sort of the thing with this is not a this is not a criticism of Clement's thought at all. Um, no, no, it's it's about reason. It, but yeah. I do sort of think that element of the the multiple purposes of this book make it both the best and the absolute worst introductory text. Like simultaneously, because like the introductory text part, if I really wanted someone to understand Marx, yeah, I give them. Chapters two, probably chapter six, right? Probably, um, probably chapter eight. It's a different book, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, and but I remember like Doug Lane and people telling me this should be your introduction, and I'm like, okay. Reading again, I'm like, this would be really weird as an introduction. Uh, Yeah, definitely, I agree with that. (laughs) You already have to know what's at stake here. To, yeah. to, to really I, to really grasp why this is this is also important. This is internally French warfare. You know, yeah, I I honestly think capital is probably the best introductory text to Marx. I don't. Come I on. actually really don't. I no do not. Why, why do you think that? Because the I mean, only I hear that all the time, and most people read capital end up getting really terrible ideas from it because they don't understand all the arguments it's making. It's not particularly career, and the translations are usually not even that great. So, it's it's um, it's huge. It's really long, and and it's asking someone to read five thousand pages as your introduction for one part of a because this is only one part of Marxism. Like, but it's it's so Uh, important to just understand how the system works, right? But that's not what people get out of it. People have a mystic journey with the text. If David Harvey is any indication of how people are reading this book, it is they, they are not getting a systemic understanding from reading Capital. I don't think Harvey's that bad in his reading class. I think you're being too harsh on him. But like, like uh, I, I, I'm not even I'm not even hating on the Mystic Journey. I like you know I during no, a period. I don't, I'm not even re- saying the reading class is that bad, but the books he produces from it are that bad. So like. During a period of grief, like I read Capital and I had like a mystic journey with it. It was pretty cool. But you know what was the best part is that I had been reading tertiary and secondary material for like years before I read it. So it actually, I actually knew what was at stake when I was going through the argument. So it, it helped me read it a lot. And I don't always, I don't always like recommend people get acquainted with the arguments before diving in because sometimes it colors the way you read the text too much. But I think uh-huh. with Mark, it's, it's just, it's, it's so impossible. He's full, he's just going through all these like 
classical ideas and debates and kind of shit, like knowing where he's coming from to, for Marxist reasons is very important, I think. Well, uh, I also think I agree um, with Puya, though. I agree with Puya. I think you should. Yeah, I'm, I'm, on, I'm on team everyone here, but I'm, I'm leaning on, on, on team Puya and, uh, and, and Tom here for, for the same reason that, that Andrew uh, gave us in the reading Capital Closely class is that um, the distortions are so vast in the secondary and tertiary, and tertiary literature that. Uh -huh. um, yeah, you, you, uh, yeah, you but really I just, need my point wasn't cap, you, capital, that, but but again, the the, the, the the asterisk as large uh, as as large as a fucking black hole here, or as yeah, it, I I put a galaxy size asterisk on that. That is, <laughs> or no, I think uh, Marx yeah, is a the, terrible teacher in his own theory. I think and, maybe. Um, the German ideology might be the best introductory yeah, text. I, but... I would still introduce Marx, but I, I always throw people out with like the critique of the Goethe program because there's stuff that there's other stuff that's actually crucial to socialism that you will never get from reading Capital because it's not about it. Right. Well, and what, what even about value, price, profit? Okay. Or 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 what about uh, Chris Arthur's? Uh, you know, edited like version of capital for students that has most of the fucking like word problems and predecimal shillings. I like <laughs> either translated into, you know, tangible math for humans today or just cut out entirely. Like it, <laughs> like I, I think, I think the problems with distortion are very real and, but they're immediately apparent if you read one or two, if you read more than one book, about Marx, like you immediately recognize nobody agrees. Uh, there's other people who, who I'm not going to name out of friendship, um, <laughs> who I, who I, who I have gone through reading groups with and who have even had correct interpretations, but when trying to struggle through it, like ad hoc with a fresh mind, recapitulate some of the very mistakes that we're talking about. I mean, and that's that's what's in my mind right now. Is this, I've known people who even kind of know better, but when they try to when they try to like forget all the secondary material, end up recapitulating some of the same mistakes, even if they work their way out of it. But it so there must be something there that isn't apparently obvious. Um, I mean, I think a lot about how Draper talk about how like one of the most maddening things about many Marxist categories is you actually cannot find them defined anywhere. And his, his example of that was, how do you exactly define working class in Marx? You won't find the definition explicitly stated. You'll find the components of the definition explicitly stated, but the actual full definition is not explicitly stated. So the fact that we have so much trouble with this seems to be inevitable. We're getting well no, off track but, here. But, but, my, 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 my point on that, Lexi, and, and you really know this too, is that this, this is not remotely agreed upon amongst Marxist, and they can cite oh, the right, same right. text. No, 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 all right, all right. Point taken. That is, okay. that is point taken. I got okay. If, like, do, do we have anything specifically about chapter three before, before we hang up? Because it's nearly three hours. I think the chat yeah, will... I'm, I'm done. I'm um, <laughs> there, there was there was one little tiny thing that I wanted to do, um, which was interject Sinha's response to Kleiman 
about this this equation. So this is this review really pissed uh, Andrew off, um, and is um, like he wrote like a big thing about how this is the you know this is like terrible scholarship. I'm getting like bad treatment here. I, I'm not sure if it was subject for legal action or something, but here, let's see. I have the link here. Dun, 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 dun. So he, he quotes, so um, Sinha quotes like the Dmitriev example on, on page one. Uh, and by the way, this comes right after a positive review from none other than Richard D. Wolf in the same journal. Um, so he, he quotes uh, Dmitriev's mathematical proof of the proposition. And then he quotes uh, Kleiman's refutation of the rate of profit equaling 25%, or I should say, you know, uh, challenging the assumptions of the model. And then this is all he says. If the above reasoning was true, then it would imply that positive prices could prevail only if there are diminishing returns in the system. If constant returns prevail, then prices would quickly fall to zero. But the question is, why should the price of the machine in the above equation fall to zero? It costs four machines to produce five, so why should machines become free? Kleiman does not entertain oh, for such fuck's questions. sake. Let us move on. Oh, for fuck's sake. Can, can, oh, we, can we have geez. a little sound off about this after, now that we've other like... Other than the fact it's other bullshit? Like, okay, anyway. So what 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 do you want us oh. to respond to other than have a five minute hate where I actually sympathize with Kleiman? <laughs> no, it is, Mach um... machines are constant capital. It says right there in 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 chapter two that constant capital only transfers the the value um, in direct proportion to its price of acquisition. And a fucking story. That's it. Yeah. <laughs> the point We're done. Wasn't... The, the point wasn't the five minutes hate, although it, it could be. The point is, um, this this is like as a as a novice and someone that was open to the critique and is waiting to hear. Okay, explain to me why this is this is not like a respectable move. This just seems like uncharitable gibberish. And, like, and it's and it's wrong. That's why Kleiman begins with chapter two, right? <laughs> Before he moves on to chapter three, yeah, no, it's, I, it's obviously I can see I can see why one would get frustrated with a treatment like this. Oh my god! Yeah, all right, okay. Um, if you get into okay. the that uh, is the Marxist of profit, right? That book that's edited yeah. by Kleiman and Potts, and uh, Nick Potts has done a review of this review, and this review, like apparently, was put into this journal. Without being checked, I think it's this one has been done without being checked. The reviewer was doing stuff with Kleiman and when it was asking him questions and stuff, and and then misrepresented this, you know, his arguments. But I think that's just a plain, obvious misrepresentation of of Marxist theory, you know. End of just, book. End of story. It's just like you can't you can't call yourself Marxist uh, econom economist for me and then make that argument. That's that's just like being a creationist yeah. and a Darwinian. They're just but, opposite. But, but worse than that, you, you can't claim to have read the book and made and make that argument because he literally deals with that exact argument in the first 15 fucking pages. Okay. Well, we're going to take it offline. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Sorry about all the 
nefarious IT issues. My router crashed um, and then my mics didn't work. And thanks, everybody, for coming on. And uh, sorry for all the arguments. Bye now. <laughs> Bye. Bye. It was good talking to you all. Bye-bye. Bye.